Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagen. It's KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. We'll be back in just a minute. Tonight's guest, Walter Cruttenden, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
right, there you have it. Good evening. It's Mike. It's Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And it's about nine minutes after 11 p.m. on June the 19th, soon to be the 20th, and right around the 20th, as we welcome in the day, we'll have Walter Cruttenden, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. Walter's been on the program once before back in uh, November of 2005, and we spoke a couple weeks ago, and there's a lot going on, and there was good reason to get him back on the air and talk, and he's really interesting, and it's a great story uh, that Walter tells, and uh, we'll talk with him in just about 50 minutes. Okay, I'll tell you a little bit more about Walter if you're not familiar with the uh, lost star of myth and time uh, as we get to, toward the top of the hour, okay? All right, uh, thanks to Debbie, first of all. Uh, wonderful stuff. Free Range Radio Theater, as always. Doing it up on Mondays at 10 p.m., just an hour before this program. Before that, you get uh, to listen to jazz plus blues equals who knows what with Jason and Kelvin. And uh, Mondays are always great. I actually like the tech radio guys that are on earlier in the evening, around 7 o'clock or so. And uh, Jeff Wheeler starts things off at, uh, actually, tech tech radio is, I think, at 6 to 7. And then uh, Jeff does 3 to 5 with Uncommon Light. There's some news and things thrown in the middle. But great stuff on Mondays. And uh, Yvonne taking over now uh, the shift at 2 a.m. after Radio Orbit, and he's been doing a great job, too, over the last uh, month or so since he sort of joined the family here. So thanks to everybody who helps out, and thanks to KOPN for making it possible, and thanks to everybody who supports the station, uh, because we need you now more than uh, more than we ever have, okay? All right. Speaking of that, uh, this program is brought to you by listener support and Fire in Hand Media. Fire in Hand Media is a source for establishing a web presence. Fire in Hand Media uh, provides graphic, textual, and dynamic designs. Fire in Hand Media can develop and produce your website's content with functionality. Information on Fire in Hand Media is available on the web at fireinhand.com or at 573-424-5748. All right, Fire in Hand Media. Check them out, fireinhand.com. Com. Okay, uh, what else? Uh, the music. I'll tell you a little bit more about it the next time we have Marco Roden on the air. But that song is called Nidor. It's by my friend Michael Pacheco, uh, the Mantuan bard, of course. All right, we'll hear more from Michael down the road, trust me. Uh, thanks as well to everyone who joined in last week. We had uh, a wonderful conversation. I was thrilled to talk with Rian Eisler, and I'll try to set something up with her and her husband David for another show in the future. Uh, but uh, it was great, and I really enjoyed it. Now, last uh, but not least, certainly uh, thanks to Michael Kane. Great local independent music. Awesome stuff. If you missed it, it's on the web. Go to MikeHagan.com, and you can go to the archives, and you can go to the music section, and you can check out Michael Kane. And if you go to the archives, you can download the MP3 of the entire program and hear how we wove it so nicely into the program and the conversation with Rian. And you can actually hear uh, Rian's words for yourself and the rest of the program and all of the programs except for one. Uh, thank you, Amber. Uh, all of the programs that we've ever done are available uh, for one and all. And as I said, Walter and I had a great talk back in November of last year, and I look forward to more of that tonight. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. Um, 
multiple star systems, binary and trinary star systems. Uh, the idea is this, is that, uh, you know, a solar system can have more than one star, and planets, etc., can be involved in the orbits around uh, more than one star, and they can all interact in wild and crazy ways. And um, it turns out that this is actually the, the rule as opposed to the exception. And if you look around in the Milky Way, which our astronomers have done now for a good number of years, uh, all of the stars that they catalog and classify, etc., etc., um, fully 80% of them are parts of binary or trinary systems. So that means that if the Earth and our Sun and all the planets that are associated with it uh, is part of a uh, a singular sun system, then, then it's really anomalous. It's more, it's more the the exception than the rule. Uh, so this idea of the sun having a binary partner, a sister star somewhere out there in space that uh, has been lost in time, as Walter puts it so well, and can be found if one is a uh, an investigator of mythology, and uh, and also a scientist in the modern. Uh, you put these things together and you come up with some amazing things. So anyway, that's what we'll talk with Walter about tonight, binary star systems and the possibility that the Earth and the Sun might be a part of one. And uh, we'll just leave it at that. But uh, it wouldn't, it's not as crazy as, every, as it sounds. Uh, it's actually more the rule than it is the exception as far as uh, stars in our galaxy are concerned. So we'll talk with Walter about that in about 45 minutes, okay? All right, um, what else? We've got a load of good music tonight. We'll just do, uh, I'm going to do sort of a compilation of songs that we've had over the last month or two and some new stuff. That song uh, at the top of the hour was The Man to Embard, Michael Pacheco. The song is called Nidor, N-I-D-O-R. Check it out. You'll hear more from Michael in the future. And uh, you'll hear from, uh, more from Marco Roden. For those of you who are astute, Nidor is Roden backwards, R-O-D-I-N. And uh, that song was sort of written with that, uh, that show in mind, and it's great stuff. So thank you, Michael, and uh, thank you, Marco, for inspiring it. So I'll uh, make sure that I get an email to Marco really soon and try to get him back on the air, because I know it's important stuff, and there are a lot of people that would really like to hear him back. So, all right, uh, thanks for the emails over the last week. Hello to everybody who's listening over the web, live or otherwise from the archives. We are streaming right now, and every week... Via Cosmic Waves Radio. Uh, that's CosmicWavesRadio.com. Thanks to all the guys and girls at Cosmic Waves for making it happen. Thank you so much, uh, your angels and Carrie and uh, uh, and company. You are on the job as always, and I love it. All right. Also, thank you to Larry, the Web Wizard, as always. And tonight, a special request uh, for good thoughts and prayers for his beautiful partner Mitsuyo, who's in. Uh, in great need of a miracle. And uh, I love you, Mitsuyo. And we love you. And we send you our hearts and our, our thoughts and our prayers. All right, quite frankly, that's what we need is a miracle. So let's bring one on, okay? Uh, all right, hello to all the new registered users at the site, the forum, starting to get some action, lots of interesting posts and people getting involved. And it's fun to see everyone over there, so thank you. And to all the people who are sending art and music, awesome. Send more. More. We love it. Uh, we have this idea for orbit sounds, and we're going to make a music project. Thanks to Larry for putting this uh, together in his amazing mind as well. But 
uh, just get a hold of us on the web, and you can contact Larry sort of off the record and ask him about Orbit Sounds and what he's trying to do. But it's a uh, it's a sort of a a bold effort to make some amazing music and and uh, bring in a whole bunch of musicians from around the world and um, just make something really cool. Uh, and share it with everybody else. So, anyway, we're going to do that. There are other people that are doing similar things, like my friends Yachai, uh, Jeff, and William. They have made their entire CD, Sweet Mother Mercy, available for download. All you have to do is go over to MikeHagan.com and give us a valid email address, and that uh, CD is yours. And Larry has some other goodies if you do that. And I promise not to share it and uh, abuse it. Just would like to have a way to contact you if there's good reason to, and it's good to know who's listening and uh, or you know how many people and where they're at and that sort of thing. So uh, anyway, if you go to the web, just uh, get on MikeHagan.com, and uh, if you haven't registered, do it. It's real simple. You just pick a name and a username and a password, and give us a valid email address, and then you can have access to the whole site, all the archives, everything. Okay, and there's no money involved, nothing like that. Okay, so uh, the email address, as I've said, is orbitradio at AOL.com. And the website, MikeHagan.com. The phone number here at uh, KOPN, if we take a break, and when we take a break, is area code 573-874-5676. I'll try to answer the phone if, if I can, all right? Um, tonight, Walter Cruttenden. Next week, open lines. We're going to catch up on news. Uh, there's a small chance we might have Rick Levine. Uh, this interesting guy who made this DVD with Jay Widener uh, called Quantum Astrology. And anyway, we're we're trying to um, to, to nail down a date uh, for Rick to be on the show, and it might be next week, but I sort of doubt it. So anyway, we'll probably just do an open line show and catch up on news and that sort of thing and have Rick the following week. Uh, I ran into an amazing woman named Mary Sparrow Dancer, and I'm talking with her about doing a show real soon. Uh, Elena... Um, uh, forgive me, Elena, but uh, your your last name escapes me right now. Um, but another wonderful woman who you can find out at, let's say I know her website, but I can't remember her name. It's so embarrassing. It's um, uh, birthintobeing.com. Amazing. She's an author and uh, has made an, uh, this brilliant DVD about water birth. And uh, we're going to have Elena on the air with us I think July 17th. So that's coming up. Daniel Pinchbeck, we're still trying to get that together. Uh, Jay Widener, I talked with Jay over the weekend. Congratulations, by the way, to Jay. The new video, uh, Odyssey 2012, is completed. They just finished it up at the end of the week, and he's really excited about it, and he should be. It's two hours long, and it's going to be an opus, I think. And uh, I can't wait to see it. And we'll get Jay back on the air to talk about it uh, as soon as he's willing and able. All right? All right, what else? Uh, Christopher Dunn. I'm still trying to get a hold of Christopher Dunn. If anybody knows how to get him uh, or get in touch with him, help me. Uh, send me his contact information if you can find him. I don't know where he's at, and I can't find a way to get in touch with him through his website or otherwise, okay? Um, other people, obviously, that we're in touch with and trying to bring onto the program. So keep listening, and thank you uh, for everybody who does listen and support the show. All right, we'll be back in just a few minutes. It's about 20 after the hour on uh, June the 19th. We'll be back in just a few uh, actually, 40 minutes or so with Walter Cruttenden, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. It's a really interesting book. He's been on the air before back in November. And you can um, hop on the web 
and check out what Walter's been up to. Uh, from my website, you can just uh, page down there on the front page, and there's a link over to Walter and his website and all the information uh, about what he's up to. He also runs this interesting scientific outfit called the Binary Research Institute. And there's a whole lot of you know qualified people that are uh, that are talking about this whole idea of the sun being part of a binary system. So it's not all uh, you know new age hocus pocus. So anyway, we'll talk a lot with that um, in mind to Walter Cruttenden in about 39 minutes. Okay. In the meantime, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. And you can uh, hop on the web one more time at MikeHagan.com. We're streaming live thanks to the wonderful people at CosmicWavesRadio.com. And uh, listening to great music thanks to a great band from New York called ISM. This is called Monkey Underneath. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit.
give them their just desserts there. All right, that's Ism, Monkey Underneath. It's Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. And uh, just sneaking up on 11.30 on the 29th of June at straight up midnight, we will have Walter Cruttenden, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. Really interesting book about binary star systems and the possibility that maybe the Earth and the Sun uh, are a part of one. Okay? Uh, let's see. Speaking of that sort of thing, space weather. Let's do that right now, okay? Um, in the summertime, oftentimes around the solstice, which is just sneaking up on us as well, the 21st of June, which is, uh, let's see, today's the 19th, so it's Wednesday is the solstice, of course, and that is the day of, uh, in the summertime at least, and the summer solstice in the northern hemisphere is uh, usually June 21st, 22nd, or 23rd. It sort of flo- floats uh, because of the silliness of the Gregorian calendar. Uh, it doesn't float when it comes to you know real time, uh, cosmic time, the way the sun and the moon and the stars work. But at any rate, uh, on our calendar, it's usually in uh, June and uh, the 21st, 22nd, or 23rd. This year it's on the 21st, and it is the day... Uh, of the longest period of light, where there's more, uh, the sun is above the ecliptic for more minutes uh, than at any other day during the year. And then in the winter, the opposite happens. Right around December 21st or 22nd or 23rd, uh, the opposite happens. And those are the darkest days of the year. And, uh, of course, this is tied in with the whole, uh, you know, the Christian mythology of uh, the birth of the sun and all that, because uh, on the 25th, uh, is sort of the rebirth of the Son of God, the light from heaven uh, in many ways um, after the winter solstice. Uh, as the sun has been entombed for three days in darkness, then uh, rises on the 25th, uh, tied into the Easter myth as well. So anyway, uh, the summer solstice is coming upon us the Wednesday, the 21st, and the International Space Station, the ISIS, is doing something unusual. Um, it'll be able to be seen orbiting Earth in almost uh, constant sunlight. You can read the whole story over at spaceweather.com, but uh, it happens every year around this time uh, of, of the summer solstice. And if you're interested in looking at the International Space Station, you can do that. There are interesting sighting opportunities. And as I said, get on the web and go over to spaceweather.com and you can check out uh, how you can see it from your uh, vicinity or whatever, okay? Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, or maybe last week, I don't know, about Jupiter and about how uh, these two giant storms, or what we think are storms, on the surface of Jupiter. One uh, has been talked about for centuries and, uh, and observed for as long, called the Great Red Spot, or the Giant Red Spot, some people call it. Uh, but the idea is that it's this big swirling storm, it's huge, uh, and and it and uh, it's been just raging on the planet Jupiter for who knows how long. Well, uh, Michael Caine and I actually last week we were talking about it. You know, back in '94, Shoemaker Levy, this comet, smashed into Jupiter, and since then Jupiter's been sort of strange. Been all kinds of things happening, including uh, this uh, additional storm that brewed up, and now this is called the. Uh, uh, they call it Junior, <laughs> Red Junior, but or the Little Red Spot. But anyway, it's still gigantic. It's just not as big as the f- the first one, but it appears to be 
a similar storm or whatever it is. I mean, who knows what it really is, but um, uh, it's on the surface, and they are conjoining. They are about to meet, and uh, it's just pure speculation at this point as to what will happen, but it will happen in July. It will happen in July, and uh, I don't know. We'll see. All right, uh, here's a, uh, a quote from some astronomer uh, in Australia. He says, uh, Junior is really, cl- is really close to the great red spot now. Uh, and uh, in mid-July, we should have uh, a bump where, where the two actually meet. So we'll have to see whether they dissipate or whether they, uh, you know, encourage one another or... Who knows? It'll be interesting to watch, though. And no one really knows what's happening. So, All right, the other update that I have to give you about space weather is the comet, of course, or, or what the remains of this comet, uh, 73P schwassmann vachmann As always, get on the web and go to see Kent Stedman at cyberspaceorbit.com. Uh, Kent follows this stuff and tracks it better than anyone, and he is the great bard uh, from the cave in Seattle where he likes to hang out. But anyway, I love you, Kent. And uh, your family as well. Thank you for everything that you do. And cyberspaceorbit.com. So this comet, it's a trip. Uh, Still in its debris field. I mean, for all we know, who knows at this point. Um, uh, But interestingly, remember last week I told you about this impact that happened in Norway. There was another one in Canada. But the big one was in Norway. And uh, let me tell you the series of events (laughs) since then. Okay? Uh, A... Astronomer Newt Jorgen Odegaard, who's uh, an astronomer of, uh, of great regard in Norway, by the way, all right, uh, and doesn't choose his words lightly, I'm sure. Anyway, uh, Newt Jorgen Odegaard made the initial report. You can read about it on the web. You can go over to my website and, and link over to it. But it was on uh, a, a legitimate uh, Norwegian news source called Aftenposten. And uh, you can go on the web and find them, Afton Posten, A-F-T-E-N-P-O-S-T-E-N dot N-O. That's uh, for Norway. So www.aftenposten dot N-O. So that's the source of the initial report. And, uh, and Newt Jorgen Odegaard is certainly a real uh, astronomer. Like I say, he's, you know, he's, he's an astronomer of note in, in Norway. So anyway, he makes the report and uh, says that, uh, that, it was a, that it was a major, major impact on the side of this mountain. Uh, and he, he uses the comparison of atomic weapons uh, w- with regard to the seriousness of it and says it's never happened in modern times. In, you know, the, it was an unbelievable thing that it happened. And uh, that's, that, that's letter A, okay? B, uh, the department chairman uh, for the Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics at the University of Oslo pulls rank, okay? Now, this is in Afton Poston as well, a couple days later. Again, you can get this all on the web over at my site or at Kent's. <laughs> and uh, Professor, uh, this guy's name is uh, Kari Oxnes. I, I could make a joke about that, but uh, Kari Oxnes, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing any of these names, but uh, he said it was regrettable that this comparison had been made and that it was extremely exaggerated. Uh, this gentleman also said it was regrettable that the statement had uh, apparently emanated from the institute uh, of which he was the chairman. Um, so anyway, then uh, this guy Peter Brown of the University of Western Ontario, this is letter C, by the way, uh, 
he and one of his protégés, a guy named Wayne Edwards, they trump that report <laughs> and say, no way, it really was a, a, a big, gigantic deal. Uh, that you can get at spaceweather.com. And then, and then uh, Bill Cook, uh, a guy over at Marshall Space Flight Center, attempts to uh, sort of poo-poo the whole deal and everybody involved. So anyway, it's a, it's a whole scene as, uh, <laughs> as always. But the simple fact is something big smashed into a mountainside in, in Norway uh, a week and I don't know how many days ago. But it was a big deal. And if it would have hit a city, I don't care what they're arguing about. You know, uh, you know these, the, the scientists are now arguing about language. But the bottom line is there's a big mark uh, in the side of a mountain. And, and there's a good reason why nobody else has heard about it, you know. So... Anyway, it's a pretty interesting story if anybody's interested in the things that are flying around above our heads. And uh, there are all kinds of things, and some we know about and some we don't. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Um, Monday, it's today, June 19th. If you were out an hour after sunset, you could see Mars about a degree uh, above and to the left of Saturn. And this whole week, Mars will... Uh, sort of widen its distance between itself and Saturn. It was awesome uh, on the 18th last night. Mars and Saturn were really close, and they were inside this um, particular uh, area of the galaxy that's called the Beehive Cluster. And, uh, oh, man, pretty uh, awesome sight, Mars and, and, uh, and Saturn glowing behind the Beehive Cluster. Actually, in front of the Beehive Cluster, uh, if you want to be... Uh, you know, if you want to go to the mat on it. But anyway, it was a beautiful sight one way or the other. Okay, um, tomorrow. Uh, so anyway, this whole week, like I said, um, Mars will be sort of moving away from Saturn, but it'll be um, pretty easy to see if you know where to look. So get on the web and find out. All right, at, uh, well, many places. All right, tonight uh, we'll have Walter Cruttenden in 23 minutes or so. And we'll play one more piece of music here. And I'll get him on the phone. And then we'll come back and do some news and talk to Walter at the top of the hour, okay? All right, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. Thanks to everybody for uh, joining in with us tonight. On the web as well, there's a, uh, a live chat room that is uh, sort of bubbling over there. So let me say hi to Bob and, uh, and Loom and the Bard, Mantuan Bard, of course. Uh, Pekal, my friend. And and me, I'm over there. And there's plenty of room for others if you want to jump on the web and join us in the chat room. You can do that at MikeHagan.com and just uh, page down a little bit and click on the link that says chat room. And uh, it's pretty self-explanatory from that uh, point on. But you can listen to the show either on the radio or over the web. And then you can, um, you know... Uh, participate if you have questions or comments or whatever about what Walter and I are talking about or whatever. Uh, I'll try to keep my eyes on the chat uh, page once in a while, and if there's anything in there that uh, that can add to the conversation, I'll, I'll try to I'll try to include it. Okay. All right. So uh, it is Mike, and it's Radio Orbit KOPN. We'll be back in just a minute. We'll play a song here by Basic. This guy's name is Martin Lind, and he's a, a really great artist and musician. And I hope you enjoy this song. It's called Elemental. And uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes, okay?
All right, good stuff. That's Martin Lind, a.k.a. Basic. And the song is called Elemental. If you're interested in any of the music that you hear on Radio Orbit, you can uh, hop on the web and uh, go over to MikeHagan.com and click on, uh, oh, I guess it's, let me see if you have to log in to see the music. I guess you do. You have to, re- you have to log in, uh, and then you just click on the music link. It says, um, you know, it's my own website. Larry changes it so often, I, 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 sh- I should be more uh, astute. Uh, but all you do is go to um, the link that says Music Archive, and then you can find out information about all of these people uh, who have been uh, sharing their music with us every week for, for months now. And uh, that last one, Martin Lind, uh, he's written a whole bunch of stuff, and he's a really interesting character, and writing great music, and uh, Ism, the band I played, um, what, 25, min- uh, 25 minutes ago or so, I love them, the, the, their CD is called Monkey Underneath, that was the title track that we heard from that a little bit earlier, and then we started the show out with uh, the Mantuan Bard himself, with a song called Nidor, that was uh, pretty neato. Oh, man, that was lame. Anyway, so it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. We've got about 10 minutes or so, 12 minutes, uh, before the top of the hour, before June 20th. And as I said, uh, the solstice coming up on Wednesday the 21st. That's always a special day in the skies above your heads. So pay attention to the sun that day. The sun in the heavens, the sun of God, as it were. And... uh, Let's see, what else? We'll play one more song before the top of the hour, but we got time for a couple of uh, news stories here. And Walter has some stuff in the news, too, that I'm sure he'll be uh, ready to share with us because there's some really interesting things that are relevant to uh, his uh, particular area of interest and endeavor. Uh, but we'll get to that stuff uh, in just a little while with Walter. In the meantime, what else is happening here, okay? Uh, robot walks on water and land. Uh, We know you're still reeling from the awesomeness that is the robotic panda uh, and other more aquatically inclined robots, Um, but this new one is called Strider, and uh, it is wild. It sort of looks like, um, if you've ever seen a water spider uh, that sort of floats on the surface of a water, especially here in Missouri, we have a lot of these water spiders, and they can just sort of glide uh, over the surface of lakes and streams and this sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, this is, uh, at least as I look at the image of it, 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 it seems to be designed with that uh, as sort of a, a foundation, that sort of a model. But anyway, this is a, a wild story, and um, the the headline is basically that robotics are getting really, really uh, sophisticated and uh, and much, much smaller than we ever imagined. You know, and it's... You know, as we talk about every week, it is not 50 years in the future. I mean, this stuff is happening right now. It's, uh, it's we're in the middle of it, and we'll have Dr. Alan Goldstein uh, back on the air with us sometime this summer. Uh, he just sent me another fascinating but frightening uh, piece on uh, nanotechnology, but as it relates to medicine, uh, nanomedicine, and you know, uh, Dr. Goldstein is. You know, one of the guys that's in the middle of the thing. He's in the fray, and he does it. He doesn't just write about it. He's actually doing it. 
and you can find out about him on the web, but he's a, uh, a professor of uh, high stature at Alfred University. Uh, everything that he does um, outside of Alfred, you know, he has his own private uh, interests or whatever, and when, he, and when he appears on the radio program and when he writes uh, for magazines like Salon.com, uh, which has uh, published, thank you to them, uh, it's a courage to publish uh, some of the stuff that Dr. Goldstein is putting out there. Uh, I, Nanobot, just this, I mean, profound uh, piece about the impact of nanobiotechnology that is on our doorstep. You know, it is not uh, uh, 20 years in the future, 10 years in the future. It's right here. And uh, I'm, I'm reminded of... of uh, for whatever reason, McLuhan's, Marshall McLuhan's first book, The Mechanical Bride. And uh, what an amazing piece of uh, work that was, you know, and a contribution, uh, contribution to, to what's happening uh, to us right now. But this marriage with uh, technology is one that is on. The marriage is on, and the wedding is just uh, just getting going, or, or, or the... Uh, uh, how should I say the uh, what do they do after a wedding? You have the celebration, right? Anyway, that whole deal, the reception, is just getting going, I think. And uh, either lucky for us or you know, unfortunately for us, we're right in the thick of it. It's the whole Chinese deal. Uh, you know, may you live in what do they say? May you live in interesting times. But they look at it as both a blessing and a curse. <laughs> so uh, there you have it. Anyway, lots of stuff on the web just like this. And um, uh, this robot walking on water and all kinds of other things uh, at MikeHagan.com. Just uh, go there and page down on the front page. There's uh, Larry's put together a bunch of interesting articles uh, revealing how marijuana affects the brain. There's one. Uh, let's see. Uh, NASA to announce... An answer to the black hole paradox. Oh, I can't wait for that one. Uh, a cell could offer dramatic boost for scientific computing. This whole idea of computers and biology, sort of the line between the two blurring, is just really happening uh, because they're using biology now uh, to, uh, well, as the workings of computers. Anyway, all kinds of stuff going on in the web. And. Uh, a Russian mission to Mars announced. Uh, Russia plans to send up a space capsule. Some more antiquated ideas. Um, but they're going to wait till 2009. They might as well wait till 2009. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that's the that's the story that they're peddling these days. Is that you know you never know when they're going to go to Mars. I've heard so many damn stories. Of, uh, of when we're going to go to Mars, starting in like 1964, when I was born. And in 1969, uh, you know, American men walked on the moon. At least it appears so. Believe it or not, there are some people that actually, you know, that, 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 that discount that, and they fight against that. They say, that, that never happened. <laughs> you know, some reasonable people say that, so who knows, you know, but anyway... Uh, I was five years old. It looked to me like they landed on the moon. I've always assumed it, right? If they didn't, well, whatever. You know, if they were playing on a, on a stage in Arizona, 
and this is a bunch of kids getting their rocks off, whatever, okay? Uh, anyway, <clears throat> ever since then, they were going to go to Mars. Going to Mars is no different than going to the moon. It's just further, you know, the physics involved, the, the, the celestial mechanics, all this stuff is no different. Uh, and it's just, for some reason, you know, uh, the technology that, uh, that we're allowed to see, it seems like, it's just this never-ending, uh, we're going to go sometime in the future. And it never seems to happen. But, I don't know, I always wonder what's happening under the radar, so to speak. So anyway, uh, here's here's a good one. Hillary Clinton. You know, I don't do much politics, but here's a funny one. Hillary Clinton wants a White House privacy czar. Then there's czars. You have a czar for everything. You have a drug czar and a terror czar, and a, now we, now we have a privacy czar. <laughs> That's exactly what we need, Hillary. A privacy czar. Okay, thanks. I appreciate it. What we need is for people to stand up and be men and women and just live their lives, you know, and not take any uh take any abuse and and not abuse others. Simple. We don't need privacy czars. Uh, and we don't need control freak or power monitors like Hillary and all the other clowns in Washington and in these governments that are supposed to be here to help that do nothing but harm. Uh you know, and we should we should learn our lesson. Look at history. If these guys were going to solve the problems, the problems would have been solved, you know. If hortatory preaching was going to solve the problem, uh, the Sermon at the Mount would have solved it, all right? So, it's time for some new, old answers. Maybe. All right, speaking of that, we got Walter Cruttenden coming on uh, in just uh, four minutes or so. And we will play one more piece of music between now and then. This song is called appropriately, because it's what stars do, well, apparently, they shine. And this is Matt Presti. You listen to Radio Orbit. It's uh, almost midnight. We'll take care of the essentials right now. KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Uh, Check us out on the web at kopn.org. Check out this program at mikehagan.com, H-A-G-A-N. And you can also find information about Walter Cruttenden on the site, and you can find information about this guy right here. As I said, Matt Presti, and the song is called Shine. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Walter Cruttenden. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit.
time to jump in or be left behind? Are you lost in the darkness in linear time? Are you a child of the heart or a child of the mind? Duality is just a formality. Everything is one when you shine like the sun. No gravity is ever gonna hold you down. You gotta be lost if you wanna be found. found. The sun will shine away. So you one or we can fall away. Don't be afraid to to make this world a better place The sun will shine away The darkness will never hold sway So let the love go Gotta love and be loved That's the only way If I could write one song I could save the whole world This is what I'd say to all the boys and girls You know something's wrong in the world today Seven deadly sins Still more on the way You gotta be strong Head up to what's wrong You're the next generation So save this one nation Under God and the Liberty and justice for all. Join me in the song. Sing along. The sun will shine away. We can be as one or we can fall away. I'm not afraid to take a chance to make this world a better place. The sun will shine my way. The darkness will never hold sway. So let the love You got the love and be loved. That's the only way. With the truth about the world. Test of the best. You gotta stand up in love or die like the rest. There's only one way to live to get back what you give. Sometimes you gotta lose before you can win. Unite the heart and mind and let yourself shine. There's a rhythm in the world so divine, so fine. Wake up and realize what's before your eyes. Go back to sleep, keep living in lies. The choice is up to you, so decide what to do. Follow through and don't give up. Always be true. Many a fool will come, many a fool will go. Many a man believes in what he never will know. Are you experience what you believe to be? Then stand up, you all, and repeat after me. I got the seeds, gonna plant some trees. Sending a shout out across the seven seas. The sun will shine away. We can be as one, or we can fall away. Don't be afraid to take a chance to make this world a better place. The sun will shine away. The darkness will never hold sway. That's Shine from Matt Presty. You listen to Mike Hagen. And it's Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Uh, tonight, our guest, Walter Cruttenden. He's been on the program uh, once before, back in November. If you missed that, uh, you can check it out on the web at MikeHagen.com. Just go over to the archives, and you can download or listen to the program. It was really fascinating. And uh, Walter has written a wonderful book uh, that has uh, created quite a bit of uh, conversation in the astrophysical community and it's called Lost Star of Myth and Time. You can find out information about the book and Walter 
uh, on the web at loststarbook.com. And uh, Walter also runs uh, a scientific uh, endeavor that's interesting uh, that is uh, related to the same idea, and that's called the Binary Research Institute. And we'll talk with Walter about that in just a few minutes. But uh, at any rate, interesting stuff, and we'll get right to him. Walter Cruttenden, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. Thanks for uh, rejoining us here on Radio Orbit, man. Pleasure, Mike. All right, good to have you. Walter's joining us from California, Southern California. And what, about 10 o'clock your time right now? Just 10 o'clock, so it's still a respectable hour here. Yeah, we're, um, we're, we're having... Uh, uh, I'm having a little bit of trouble with the stream right now. I'm not sure what's going on. It's sort of uh, coming and going, but uh, hopefully the guys are working on it and, and it'll pick back up. But anyway, there are people uh, joining us on the web who are listening, and uh, it's good to have you. Thanks. It's been, I don't know, uh, November, and now it's June, so it's been seven or eight months since we talked. And, man, there's a whole lot that has happened uh, in those seven months. It sure has been. Yeah, a lot of news both on the astronomy and archaeology front. Well, we're going to get, uh, we got two hours uh, to spend on it, and we'll get into that stuff as we get moving. But let's, uh, for the people who aren't really familiar with the story and with uh, you, maybe you could, uh, let's spend a little bit of time on that and reacquaint ourselves with, uh, with the whole notion here. Uh, what is Lost Star of Myth and Time about? And uh, let's assume that uh, some people are new to the program and they don't know anything about precession or any of these things, and let's just start from square one and, and uh, try to give a little description of what we're talking about here. Gladly, Mike. Uh, well, as I mentioned uh, briefly before, uh, when I was a little boy, I was just fascinated with ancient cultures and history and all these great civilizations from Sumeria to Akkad, Babylon, ancient Egypt, Mohenjo-Daro, uh, Harappa, Indus Valley, and really all around the world, these great civilizations just declined. They all declined into a dark age, which probably culminated with the fall of Rome. Few people realize that as Rome was falling, the, the Mayan civilization was uh, near crumbling, and so was the Han, Han Dynasty in China. And right, the, right. the world went through a great dark age. And right. So I got in school, and they told me that it's all uh, pretty linear. Anything that came before us is more primitive, you know, caveman to modern man story. And it just didn't seem to uh, sync with what I'd been reading. So I um, did a lot of a lot of study uh, to of ancient texts, myth, and folklore, and found out that about 30 different ancient cultures, this is from Nordic to uh, Polynesian and all the classical cultures in between, believe that history moved in a cycle, a vast cycle. As a matter of fact, Plato called it the Great Year. Okay, all right. And uh, it has a golden age on one end and a dark age on the other. And the Indian or Vedic society and, uh, uh, you know, ancient uh, Hindu lands, they called it the Yuga cycle, whereas the Mayans uh, called it, you know, the long count, uh, different suns, the Hopis called these different ages worlds, and, you know, the Greeks just called it the uh, the great year and these different ages. And right, the turning of the ages in this. Exactly, and and they all seem to relate it, uh, Mike, to this phenomena called the precession of the equinox, which was kind of weird because a lot of these cultures uh, really didn't, supposedly didn't know what the cause of precession was. That wasn't supposedly discovered until Hipparchus, uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, right before Christ. 
uh, yet they all had stories for it. You know, when this constellation was prevalent, we'd be in the Golden Age, or when that one was, we'd be in a Darker Age, and so forth. And um, so I just really began to investigate and work with a bunch of other scientists to find out if there might indeed be any truth to that, because it seemed to fit the archaeological record. So we dug into this whole uh, uh, ancient idea that the precession of the equinox is not due to just a wobbling of the Earth's axis, but might actually be due to our solar system's motion around another star. Mm. And thus the name of the book, Lost Star of Myth and Time, it's really documents our search for uh, this mythical star that ancient cultures uh, said indirectly caused the rise and fall of the ages. Amazing. Okay, so that's the basic uh, premise of what we're going to be talking about, the fact that, that we might be a part of a binary star system. Yes, yeah. And, you know, again, when I was a kid, they were thought to be very, very rare. Maybe, you know, one out of every 20 or 30 stars you looked up and saw in the night sky might be a double star, a binary star. And, uh, heck, by... By the 1980s, NASA was saying it could be over half of all stars. And I even saw one report uh, on a NASA website, their Chandra website, said up to 80% of all stars might right. be binary right. systems. Right. So, so, so if we, so the odds are that if the Earth and the Sun and our system isn't one, I mean, even if it's 50-50, there's a good, there, there's good reason to talk about this and to look into the science and the and the mythology behind it. You bet. Yeah, most stars are gravitationally bound to to another star, so uh, why wouldn't ours be? Right, right. Okay, so... Um... And, you know, when we look up, we only see one little point of light, but if you look through a telescope, you usually find a couple of dots there, two or three, and that's what's considered a binary or multiple star mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And, okay, uh, let's let's talk about, uh, about precession a little bit more, okay? Um First of all, I have to sort of take a quick left turn. Did you ever read Hamlet's Mill? Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> of course, right? I actually dedicated my book to the author. Yeah, that's right. Santa, Santa, I, I, and I apologize. I haven't read your book in, in, in seven months, but you know I read the whole thing. And, of course, uh, uh, the amazing book by Giorgio... Giorgio de Santiana and Hertha Von Deschen. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, they're way ahead of oh, their time. Yeah. Giorgio was, you know, he was... Uh, heavyweight guy, professor of the oh. history of science at MIT. I know. And uh, he's he's actually the first one to have documented how prevalent this uh, this myth was about this golden age, dark age. He said it's as common as the flood myth out there. I, oh my God. And he said there's over 200 bits of myth and folklore that that refer to it and referred to procession. Hey, when did when did uh, when did they write Hamlet's Mill? Was it like, I mean, plus or minus, 50 oh, years ago? Yeah, pretty long time, probably closer yeah. to 40. I think uh, a little less, uh, 1968 is a number that strikes me. Okay, as okay. So, but, it, but it's certainly for people that are out there aren't familiar with the book, uh, it's an older book and it's an unbelievable, uh, amazing uh, account of this whole idea that, 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 uh, uh, that, that Walter is now... Uh, uh, 
running with. Running with. I mean, outrageous yeah. uh, what, what's coming from this whole thing. And there are all kinds of people that are involved in sort of uh, tangential work. And I know that the conference, uh, uh, the CPAC conference, is getting more and more attention. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But anyway, let's talk more about procession and uh, what it really means and what the, uh, what the typical... Uh, the standard version, what the orthodox version or explanation of it is, and um, and then and then maybe some alternative ideas of, of, why, of you know other ways to look at what might be happening. Sure, and it's an appropriate time too because uh, we're on the cusp of the uh, yeah the solstice coming up solstice here. Uh, but yeah, the ancients would uh, virtually every megalithic structure built before the year 1500 BC, and these are these heavy stone structures like ziggurats, pyramids, obelisks, cairns, dolmens, you know. Uh, people are familiar with Stonehenge, but few realize that there's actually 500 of those stone circles uh, just in Britain alone. But virtually all of them, before the year 1500 B.C., are aligned with one of the cardinal points, typically the equinox or solstice, something like this. Right. And... Um, on the equinox, uh, they would often, you know, see what constellation was there at sunrise, and they they kept time this way, t- time of the great year, you know, where we are in this huge cycle. Right now, time different than hours and days, but more of a yes, different, but a similar concept actually, you know, because uh, they they picked out uh, twelve constellations that lie along the ecliptic, which is the sun's path through the skies. So we all know sort of what path the sun travels, and if you look up at night, you'll see constellations there. Well, those constellations, Aquarius, Pisces, uh, Taurus, etc., um, they'd use like a number on, on, on a clock. And, but this one moves really, really slow. So like uh, a thousand years before Christ, uh, Aries would have been there in the night sky. And about the time of Christ, uh, Pisces was, was just coming into view. Pisces lasted about 2,000 years, and now Aquarius is just coming into view. That's okay. the same, the dawning of, of Aquarius. Aquarius. Right, right, right. right. And so they kept time, basically, using the zodiacal clock uh, of this great year. And they believed, you know, at one point you'd have this uh, incredibly golden age, and at another point you'd have this dreary and dark age. As a matter of fact, I was just reading the work of a wonderful scientist. His name's Stefan Mall. He's considered the foremost Assyrianologist in the world. And um, Assyrianologist? Assyrianologist, as in, yes. As in Assyria, the place, the ancient. Yes, exactly. So where t- modern-day Syria is today... Mm-hmm used to comprise a much larger area called Assyria, which included Mesopotamia, Sumer, Akkad, etc. And it's considered uh, one of the oldest civilizations in the world, the, basically the cradle of civilization. And anyway, they've, they've found over 100,000 of these clay tablets, these cuneiform tablets. And he's He's one of the few guys that can actually read them, and they've only pieced together like, you know, less than one percent of these. But he's he says that something amazing is happening, and he gave this talk at Stanford not long ago. And he said that 
all of their words uh, that are the words for past, if you trace them, uh, you know, linguistically to current words, there are words for future. Mm-hmm. And all of their oh. words for future are our words for past. Right, this was an Andean tribe, right, or something? Uh, this one was actually... Um, this is on some of the cuneiform tablets and cuneiform seals uh, in the, you know, around the Tigris-Euphrates River. Oh, okay. Well, there, I, I, I apologize, but there's a, uh, there's an amazing story that's in the news just in the last week about an Andean tribe uh, that does the same thing. The future is the past. Ooh, I didn't even know that. And, and well, uh, that next time we take a break, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll shoot you the. The link really quickly, or I'll put it up on uh, in the chat page here. But uh, let me just make the point real quick. Yeah, though, go ahead, please. Like that, uh, this number one scientist in reading these ancient texts has also confirmed what Giorgio de Santillana and these other great uh, scholars of mythology uh, found that these ancient cultures believe that the the high times, the golden age, was behind them. And they saw themselves in a descending age four or five thousand years ago. Right. And they were absolutely convinced that, that the world was going to, you know, enter a dark age and and they would be no more. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. That whole area, the cradle of civilization, uh, became virtually nomadic, you know. Right, right, right. And so they they knew kind of their own destiny and huh. they, they said it was just by following this great year, this idea that life moves in a vast cycle. So all my work has been dedicated to, okay, what could cause this cycle? And um, that's really what took me into the whole world of astronomy and and studying this phenomena of precession. And I found, basically, uh, you know, we've used mathematicians and astrophysicists uh, here at the Binary Research Institute that... Procession, which has long been thought to just be caused by a wobbling of the Earth, is actually due to this motion around another star. And as we do go around this other star, we get sort of a, an influence from from a point in space. Uh, you know, all stars are huge generators of electromagnetic waves. Right. And that affects our ionosphere, our magnetosphere, and we believe uh, indirectly consciousness. And, and we have some studies on that. And so it looks like the ancients knew about this cycle, and this is um, uh, something that still continues to affect us today. A matter of fact, a really good way to to think about it is, um, you know, the cycle of night and day is simply driven by the Earth spinning on its axis. And when we face the sun, we're getting more electromagnetic uh, waves you know, they cause us all essentially to be conscious. And we, when we face away from it, all of us actually flip consciousness. We, every day we go into the conscious and subconscious back and forth. Most of us preferring to sleep at night, except for you and some teenagers, I think. And uh, the uh, same thing we have on the annual basis. You know, as the Earth goes around the sun, we uh, have these cycle of the seasons and things spring out of the ground and grow and decay again and causes all manner of life to spawn, migrate, everything. 
Well, so too does this third celestial cycle have the same type of influence, but over a much longer scale. It's not just a day or not just a year. It's a great year, one yuga cycle, one golden age and dark age. It's it's called an eon. I'm sure you've heard that term. Sure, now. It's an and, eon. And, and what's, the, what's the period of time that we think? 20, well, 26,000 years, something like that? Yeah, currently precession is measured. Uh, this is by you know top astronomers that are they see how much we change with the alignment of a particular star or quasar at, at each equinox, uh, and it's roughly 50 arc seconds per year. So at the current rate, uh, it takes about 25,700 years or so to complete one precession equinox. But because all orbits are elliptical and they go faster in some parts and slower in some parts, and we've just come out of the dark ages, we actually think it'll average closer to 24,000. And the reason that's important is because that gives you 12,000 years of sort of things are getting better, 12,000 years of things are getting worse. And we think the ancients uh, used that as a uh, microcosmically for our our uh, timekeeping system. You, know, you have 12 hours of a.m. and 12 hours of p.m. every day, a total of 24 hours in the whole daily cycle. Right. So it's just like a, our, this little thing we have on our watch, on our clocks, is actually a microcosm hmm. of the macrocosmic uh, cycle that we're all going through. Amazing. You know, as above, so below, that's what it says, huh? Absolutely, yeah. It's just that... You know, the cycle is so long and we live so uh, such a short period of time compared to the cycle that we uh, are hardly even aware of it. It's, we're like an, an ant, you know, hmm. Does, doesn't, doesn't even live uh, through one season, so never knows about the seasons of the year. Hmm. Amazing. It's all a matter of perspective and, and, uh, and, and point of reference, I guess, is something that we'll talk about more uh, as we get going. Yeah, and something, uh, too, we can touch on is where we are in the cycle and right. why it's a pretty good time right now. Right. Hey, um, we were speaking of Assyria before. How about this, uh, This what was his name, Ashurbanipal, or was was he an Assyrian? He was one of the first archaeologists, and he did... Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Uh, um, these uh, Modern scholars, when they first kind of discovered Mesopotamia and all these uh, tablets and seals, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, they were amazed to find out that the Syrians themselves, almost three to 4,000 years ago, practiced archaeology where they would find structures that were three or 4,000 <laughs> years old. And uh, so that's one of, the, one of the incredible finds in Mesopotamia is the library at Nineveh. And it's uh, basically an old museum that uh, that dates to at least 1000 B.C. And it was just uh, crushed, caved in somehow, some reason. And inside there was evidence that goes back 3,000 years before 3,000 B.C. Wow, amazing. <laughs> before 1000 B.C., yeah. So right. it's, yeah, that's great data. Okay. All right, let's see um, what else I want to ask you about that. was. Oh, you know, I have to make an observation of something, and, and uh, we've got plenty of time here, so let me share something with you. Uh, as we were talking about this whole as above, so below thing, right? 
Yes, Herm. Yeah, that's everywhere, you know. We see that all over, first of all, right? In all these different mythologies, they say the same thing. Um, but I had a woman on the air last week, and her name is Rian Eisler. And uh, she's an amazing woman, and she wrote this book, uh, I don't know, 19 years ago now or something, uh, called The Chalice and the Blade. And Sounds familiar. It's fantastic. And, and anyway, her whole... Uh, uh, line of work for many years has been uh, this concept of what she calls a partnership society, and uh, and she finds uh, she's interested in archaeology as well as history and sociology and lots of things. She's a brilliant woman, and uh, uh, anyway, she talks about how in prehistory, in places like Crete, uh, Minoan Crete, fascinating uh, culture. Uh, yes, and uh, she she shows evidence there that it wasn't. Uh, a a culture that was set up with a system of male dominance hierarchy, for example, you know it, the 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 way that the culture was set up was more uh, and uh, and not a matriarchy either. Uh, her whole line of work is that the answer to the patriarchy is not a matriarchy; it's a partnership, and that and that there's historical precedence for this in. Uh, places like Minoan Crete, there's this amazing uh, archaeological dig at a place called Chitalia Yuk. And uh, anyway, I'm, the whole idea of partnership is the uh, her concept, and you're going to love this, and you'll understand why I'm talking about it now. It just came to me. Uh, she talks about men and women as twins and as equal partners, but but different, you know. And the whole idea of the solar mythology, you know, is one of male dominance, uh, you know, and... It well, would, it's a it real ma- dark age phenomena, this whole male dominance thing. You know, when you get in these lowest ages, then right is, or might is right, and right, kind of right. wisdom goes out the door, and we forget how valuable our mate really is. Right, and I'm thinking that's is exactly the, the metaphor. As you said, you know, we're, we're seeing images of this right here in our own realities and I think this whole idea of our uh, our partner in other words you know men and women as equal as twins so to speak could be uh, another uh, piece of evidence towards the fact that, that that the sun has the same thing going on very much so you know uh, it appears that stars like companions as much or more than people do <laughs> and why not you know <laughs> Same with planets. Planets like to have their moons. You know? Right. Yeah. You don't find many things alone out there. You know. Right. And, and speaking of this concept as above, so below, too. Uh, something I've learned more and more since I wrote the book is how much we find evidence that structures on Earth are actually built in the shape uh, and position to reflect constellations. So, of course, the famous one is the three pyramids at Giza that are aligned like Orion's belt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But also, as I point out in the book, uh, virtually all the round towers in uh, Ireland, which were built on old Druid sites, right. if you plot them on a map, they make a picture of the major constellations in the northern hemisphere. I've heard that Heliopolis is in the shape of Aries, and I, I keep reading more and more uh, pieces like this that, uh, the very ancient world, they not only believed in this concept, they they built their structures and 
and uh, and whole communities to to live to be in tune with nature and the heavens. Yeah, and you know we we're, we're finding that more and more in our own country here as well. You know the mounds uh, that were were built by who knows who, uh, but natives of this land many many generations ago. Uh, many of them now we're learning are aligned to particular constellations and star formations, etc. And and they're and they're just they're literally, uh, Walter. You know, there are thousands of them. I know. I, I mean, know. How, yeah, that's, that's kind of a big untold story. I mean, sure, there's been articles on it here and a few books, but few people were brought up in school to realize how massive oh the mound-building culture was, or the whole megalithic culture around the world. It's amazing, and and. Uh, we're not far from a big part of it here. I'm, you know, uh, I'm in the middle of Missouri, but uh, St. Louis is, you know, formerly Cahokia, uh, which is, you know, the central point of, uh, of of much of that whole world, you know. So anyway, it's amazing, and uh, I, I love the fact that uh, that people like you and others are, are are really digging into it. No pun intended, right now. So it's it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, there's a. A new book just came out. It's called uh, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty by John Burke. And he's one of our collaborator, collaborators. He'll be at this uh, conference with us uh, in this fall. But uh, he, what he's done is a remarkable bit of evidence. He took an elect, uh, electrostatic voltmeter and a magnetometer to Cahokia and many mounds and Mayan structures and a few uh, over in Europe like Stonehenge, and and took readings over prolonged periods of time and found out that uh, they there's basically two things going on. Either there's uh, at at high points like the top of pyramids there's an unusually high electrostatic charge, or some of the uh, the lower ones, the hinges and dolmens and things, are built over magnetic anomalies. These are natural anomalies in the Earth that the ancients knew about and somehow put something, you know, yeah, some kind of marker there. Right, right, right. And what's what's so wonderful about uh, it is he had been reading a lot of uh, Mayan folklore, and I imagine this is also native uh, to some of the American Indians if we really had the myth uh, intact, but they would bring um, their food, their seed to these pyramids and leave it on top for a day or two to be blessed. <laughs> well, what he found was he took a lot of maize seeds and left some in the laboratory, left some in the car. These are sort of uh, his test plots. And then he would take some and, and put them up at the uh, top of the pyramid. And he did this at 80 different places. And what he found was the ones that were left on, on the top of the pyramid uh, received this sort of natural electrostatic charge, is just ambient charge, mm -hmm. and therefore they were stressed a little bit. Just and so it actually helps the seed, um, just like you would uh. help a muscle by working it out. Right to germinate or yeah, something. and so you, exactly. So they germinate faster. They'd have uh, you know just a higher propagation rate. So out of 100 seeds, maybe 90 would germinate versus the test plot, you're getting 75 or 78, something like that. And uh, time and time again, he just got better germination, propagation, yields. Uh, it was 
just an astounding bit of really good hard evidence to show that these ancients weren't just stupid people. <laughs> these things actually had a purpose. Right, and, and this whole concept of linear history, the idea that we used to be stupid and now we're smart, uh, this is just a, a real miscalculation. and a, a, it's, it's arrogance. Yeah, and arrogant. <laughs> On our part. All right, well, look, Walter, let's, uh, let's take a break, okay? Okay. All right, it's about... Uh, Almost exactly, 12.30 a.m. Uh, on now June 20th, uh, 2006, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. It's Mike Hagan. My guest is Walter Cruttenden. He's the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time, also the proprietor of uh, a couple of websites. Hey, Walter, what's the website for the Binary Research Institute? Is it, is it, is it binary? Binaryresearchinstitute.org, and that's sort of the hard science. And uh, just the easy stuff is at thegreatyear.com or uh, just loststarbook.com. Okay, thegreatyear.com, loststarbook.com. And if you're interested in the science, and there are a lot of nuts and bolts people that are really interested in this stuff right now, uh, binaryresearchinstitute.org. All right, Walter, back in just a minute, okay? Great. Okay, it's Mike. Uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit. Uh, let's see. Do we have to take care of any business? Here's something here. Uh, and we'll play some music after this, but this is one right now. KOPN is proud to be a member of the One Read Task Force. This year's One Read book is The Tortilla Curtain by C.C. Boyle, a novel that confronts the controversy over illegal immigration head-on, illuminating the people on both sides of the issue, the haves and the have-nots. KOPN is giving away five copies. Go now to kopn.org to register. Winners will be announced on the web July 3rd. All right, that's uh, on the web at kopn.org. You can win a copy of that uh, book, The Tortilla Curtain, perhaps. And speaking of free books, uh, Walter and his uh, assistant, Heidi, who's wonderful, by the way, uh, sent me a copy, an additional copy of Lost Star of Myth and Time. And um, sometime tonight, I'll... We'll give that away, along with a special gift that will be inside it that I won't tell anyone about. But it will have to be for a local uh, listener or regional listener because there's a problem with the stream tonight. We have a virus on the computer that uh, uh, that we've been... Well, it's been sort of an experiment now that's been going on for uh, a month or so, and uh, we're learning. So, anyway... I'm going to get that fixed, and I apologize to the people that are trying to listen over the web right now. It's sort of coming and going, uh, but uh, trust me, um, I'll get it fixed. And, you know, there are viruses and all these things that uh, when you open yourself up to the web, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a two-way street, always. And, you know, there are those that maybe don't like the message so much sometimes, too. So you never know, but uh, we'll take care of it and uh, try to make it better, all right? All right, in the meantime, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And this is a great song by my friends from Italy, uh, The Whimsers Machine. And the song is called Mystical Sea. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
All right, there you have it. That's the Wimshurst Machine, and uh, that song was called Mystical Sea. And it's Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, our guest tonight, Walter Cruttenden, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. Information on the web at MikeHagan.com. You can connect with Walter uh, directly from my front page there. And he also has uh, his own sites at the great, is it just greatyear.com? Thegreatyear.com. Yes, thegreatyear.com. Also, loststarbook.com. And for those interested in the science behind this, uh, binaryresearchinstitute.org. And so, uh, Walter, thanks for uh, sticking around here. That. And before we get uh, right back into it, I've got to share this with you. Uh, I dug up this story uh, at the break. Listen to this, all right? Uh, Andy's, this is from, um, uh, from June 13th, just a few days ago, okay? Uh, Andy's people look back to the future. This is from the Telegraph in London. Uh, the, Am- the Amara people of South America have a concept of time opposite to the rest of us so that the past lies ahead of them and the future behind, according to a study published yesterday. Until now, all the studied cultures and languages of the world, from European and Polynesian to Chinese, Japanese, Bantu, and so on, have not only characterized time with properties of space, but also have mapped the future as if it were in front. The Amara case is the first documented to depart from this standard model, said Dr. Rafael Nunez of University of California, blah, 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 and on and on. Actually, it's not the first because it fits exactly with what uh, the Acadian civilization was saying. So we'll have to make sure they know about Stefan Mall's work. How about it, huh? Yeah, this is something that's that's happening. Uh, there's all these different groups finding out little bits of information, and very few people are really putting it together. And it's my hope that you know these conferences we're doing and this collaboration over the internet will help people to connect the dots mm. so they can see, geez, how massive this ancient civilization was and how you often have uh, common beliefs uh, amongst various ancient cultures. Yeah, and, and you know, and, the, and, and our inheritance, you know, the, the, the tradition that we inherit that, that, that has been lost and that, uh, and that is a great tradition. It is, yes. You know, I, I think uh, we're always taught to respect Respect our elders and revere our ancestors up until just fairly recent times. And it's, you know, people kind of say, oh, well, that's passe. But I think there might actually be some wisdom to it because mm-hmm. they indeed had some wisdom they were trying to, to leave for us. There's no question about that. That is a certainty, Walter, my friend. I just didn't believe it when I was a teenager. That was all. Yeah, I don't think many of us did, but I tell you, I believe it now. So, uh,. Okay, let's get on with things here. So we know a few things. We know that the ancients were very interested in uh, uh, aligning uh, monuments and buildings and marking the, the, the ground with formations and terraforming and all kinds of things with regard to the heavens. They had a great interest in the stars, and, uh, and they understood, apparently, uh, the precession of the equinoxes, which we've been talking about, uh, and they understood it long before people were supposed to understand it. No question about it. Yeah, I mean, take the Great Pyramid of Giza, for example. This is uh, a structure that unquestionably dates to about 4,500 years ago, some say older. And it's this tremendous uh, thing that's built to uh, incorporate 
uh, fee and pie and the tolerances are unbelievable. It is so well aligned with the Earth's spin axis that it's not more than uh, it's not off by more than uh, three arc minutes. That's one twentieth of a degree. If an engineer today was try to would try to mimic that with just you know a regular building in downtown St. Louis or something, <laughs> they couldn't get that close because the compasses uh, are farther off because the magnetic pole wanders. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have to actually observe the sky for a long period of time and then, you know, account for the uh, movements and the or the refraction in the atmosphere uh, just to be able to get it to within about a degree. Right. So it's a, it, it, it's a huge undertaking, a huge en- engineering feat to yeah. pull it off. Right. And so then they put these uh, four shafts in it, uh, two out of the... King's Chamber, which we found some time ago because the, the openings went straight into the chamber, mm-hmm. and then two into the Queen Chamber that weren't found until fairly recent times because there was no opening. Somebody had to actually uh, figure it out that there might be there and then dig through the wall to find them. And yeah, and, and, and still very uh, hotly debated as to what was really going on with those. Yes, I, I know. I've heard this thing that, oh, maybe they're just air shafts, which is which is ridiculous because the way they're built, you had to actually create a uh, hole in all these different rocks as you're building the whole pyramid. And then these these holes have to be aligned just right. And then they coated the hole with another type of stone, sort of a, a casing stone inside. Uh, versus if you wanted an air shaft, gee, just leave a little crack and, you know, and, in some of the blocks as you're putting them together, it's so much simpler to do. Uh, so I go with the idea that they're star shafts because they seem to point yeah. point to uh, you know particular stars that were important to the uh, ancient cultures. Right, right, right. Anyway, one of them points uh, uh, to uh, you know Sirius, for example, Sirius, right. and um, for them to uh, you know be able to point this. The shaft that way uh, takes just a, a tremendous knowledge, and of course, since the stars move, it takes a knowledge of precession. Right, and, and and very difficult to believe that that it was just by chance that 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 these things lined up. Yeah, with no, these, I with mean, the, with these particular stars, with Sirius, for example. Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's just a coincidence, then right, I guess so is uh, aligning it with the, the cardinal point. Mm-hmm. Just a coincidence to get it to within one twentieth of a degree. <laughs> okay, just to and clarify, all the other ones right. are coincidences too, because it's universal throughout the world. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. So just to clarify that, we don't. This was not an accident. So, okay. Um, let, let Let me ask you a question before we get to, to the top of the hour. Let's talk about. Uh, the way procession is typically defined uh, quickly, and how what the orthodox uh, description of it is, and, and how it uh, what the source or you know what the uh, what the source of uh, of it is. Sure. Well, in modern times, uh, I guess it was first defined by Copernicus in 1543 when he wrote De Revolute Onibus, and on his deathbed, so so the Catholic Church wouldn't uh, crucify him for saying that. Uh, the Earth's not actually in the center of the universe. But he was trying to explain the three motions of the Earth. He knew it turned on its axis, and he knew it went around the sun, uh, but he had to explain the procession of the equinox. So he said the Earth wobbled or librated. Mm. 
and that stuck for you know over a hundred years, uh, a little more than that actually. By the time Newton came along, Newton said, "Well, if it does wobble, then it must be due to the gravity of the moon." And he never bothered to check whether it moved anything to rel- relative to anything within the solar system. He just laid out some equations. But his equations didn't quite work, so the French corrected them, and, and still to this day they keep tweaking it. And it's hmm. no longer just the moon that's supposed to wobble the Earth. It's supposed to be um, the moon, the sun, the largest uh, asteroids, the other nearby planets. And since they can't quite predict it, they say the Earth's core must be elliptical and move erratically. And so they've had all sorts of little issues with the theory, but that is the theory that it's, the axis is actually wobbled by the moon. Hmm. And yeah. we, we do know that the moon tugs on the Earth a little bit and causes nutation, um, but we can't buy the idea that it causes the whole wobble to do one retrograde motion. Um, because we've tested relative to things within the solar system. And again, this has to do with perspective, sort of, right? Yes, yeah. So basically the way scientists look now is that they will measure relative to something that's actually outside the galaxy, a distant quasar, and they use the farthest radio source they they can get because the farther away it is, the the less parallax there is and the more accurate reading they're going to get. Okay. And that's why they, you know, I told you they measured moves about 50 arc seconds per year. Well, that's actually 50.2915 something. <laughs> okay. So they measure it pretty precisely. Right. But they do not measure it relative to anything within the solar system because things nearby are really moving like crazy. You know, hmm. all the planets are moving and and uh, sun's moving and so, but we did because we 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 have this idea that it's actually the whole solar system moving, not just the Earth wobbling that causes precession. And so we measured it relative to the the Moon and the Sun and Venus. You know, when Venus uh, briefly crossed in between the Earth and the Sun, right? Uh, it gave us a really good measurement point. Well, they call that the transit, right? It's a big deal. Exactly. Yeah. It's, you know, it hadn't happened for 130 years, and then it happened in 2006 there, and happens in, uh, I'm sorry, not 2006, 2004, and they happen in pairs, so we'll have another one here, uh, 2012. Wow, I, again, this whole idea of the pair comes up. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, but anyway, it, the Earth does not wobble relative to things close by, and yet it clearly moves 50 arc seconds a year relative to things way outside mm. the, the solar system, yeah, but, outside the galaxy. And right. the only way we can make sense of that, Mike, is if that observable, that precession of the equinox, is caused by the solar system curving through space. It's, that's the only way all the math works out on everything. And so uh, that's, that's our theory. The solar system wouldn't be curving through space unless you know something very massive was causing it to, uh, to move and so we believe that is another star, and then we have basically two scenarios for what type of other star it could be. Wow. All right. So um, the, when, when you say that, that, that the solar system is is uh, sort of bending as it moves, moves through space, uh, 
in other words, it's being tugged by this other star, I guess, or, or I'm, I'm trying to picture it in, in, in our mind for, for the listeners. Do the, do the two stars, for example, would we guess that the sun and this companion star rev- both revolve around a common center, for example? Or? That's exactly right. The scientists, they call it a common center of mass or a common center of gravity. And all objects have that. You know, even, say, Jupiter and our sun, mm-hmm. the, it's not that Jupiter goes exactly around the sun. They both go around the common center of mass between them. But because the sun's a thousand times heavier, that common center of mass happens to be right on the edge of the sun. Um, so, but between us and another star, that common center of mass would just be a point in space, so we're kind of like, you know, two horses on a merry-go-round going around a a common point that sort of holds us there due to gravity. Right. Amazing. All right. That's how a binary system works. Okay, so... uh so that okay, I think we've done a pretty good uh, a pretty good job of sort of describing what we think is happening and uh, the idea of uh, a binary system. We know also that there are a lot of them in, in our observations of other stars in the galaxy. At least a, a heavy percentage of them are binary or trinary systems, right? Huge number, the majority. Okay, the majority. Uh, we have some amazing archaeological evidence that points to. Uh, cultures that go way, way back, we don't even know how far back, that had an understanding of precession, uh, which, is a, which, is, which really throws a monkey wrench into the sort of conventional ideas of, of, of history, actually. I mean, all of history, basically. I mean, we're basically saying we've got to scrap it, sort of. Oh, we, we keep finding things, too. I mean, uh, I don't know if you read about this, uh, this group of pyramids they found in South America, Caral, Peru. It's uh, six pyramids there on the coast they've been very very accurately dated um, you see they didn't have big blocks of stone like they had in, in Egypt and they wanted to make these pyramids so they put smaller rocks into uh, baskets and the baskets are made out of a vine and the vine only grows uh, once a year it's an, you know, it's an annual plant and so they uh when they set these rocks in, some of this vine material was virtually hermetically sealed. And so when the archaeologists found these, this site, you know, really started digging in in just the last few years, they found this plant material, had it carbon dated, and it dates to 4,700 years old. Amazing. And here's the problem with that. The pyramids at Giza are about 4,500, 4,300 years old, depending mm-hmm. on... On who you, who you talk to. Right. So if you have this whole theory of history that we came came out of Africa, we settled in the Fertile Crescent, the cradle of civilization, north of there, because farming was easy. That's where we first find writing these ziggurats, these pyramids. But then we find pyramids that are in the Americas that are even older than those pyramids. It blows your whole theory of history. <laughs> it really does. It blows the whole thing out of the water. So. Yeah, yeah, and so it's considered an anomalous find, and they're basically trying to figure out what to do with it uh, right now. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. So, anyway, they keep finding things like this all over the place that, 
that indicate there really was uh, a rather advanced civilization uh, all around the world, you know, at least four or 5,000 years ago, and, and that civilization uh, slowly fell into a great dark age. So to me, it's looking, you know, a whole lot more like a cycle than just this linear progression. And the way to explain that cycle is uh, probably what the ancients themselves told us, that, that, you know, we go around another star, and as we do so, we have a golden age and a dark age. So. All right, well, look, we're just about to the top of the hour. Uh, we will come back in just a few minutes, and we'll uh, talk about some of this, uh, some of what's happened in the last seven months. I mean, uh, the first... Was, uh, the CPAC conference, it wasn't the first one, but there was one that was in Sedona, Arizona, and I think it was after you and I spoke in in uh, November. Was it in December? Uh, no, you're right. Last year was uh, November. Okay, so it must have been toward the end of the month, though, because I know that you and I spoke before the conference. Right. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit, uh, uh, once we uh, after the break here, you can talk a little bit about what happened there, and then we'll uh, move on with the, you know just some of the other things that have come up in the last six or seven months. Because yeah, there's some amazing finds, and I'd love to get into it with you. All right, cool. We'll do that, okay? Okay. All right, it's Walter Cruttenden, and uh, you're listening to him here live on KOPN Columbia. It's Mike Hagan bringing it to you with Radio Orbit, as we do every Monday night and into Tuesday morning. It's just about 1 a.m. now uh, going on it with um, June the 20th, now an hour underway, and the 21st, the solstice, uh, the summer solstice, uh, only uh, a day and a half away or so. I think it's right around noontime on the 21st, actually, this year. And it, and, and it moves uh, uh, back and forth a little bit between the 21st and the 20th and 22nd, 23rd, depending on the calendar. Uh, again, because uh, and Walter might speak to this after the uh, after the break, but the Gregorian calendar is such a joke that uh, it's hard to pinpoint uh, uh, something that is actually very regular as far as its occurrence in the heavens. So anyway, uh, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Uh, this will wake you up, okay? It is another song from Ism, one of my favorite new bands. This one's called Beside the Sun. You can find more information about Ism on the web at MikeHagan.com and just go over to the Music Archives page, okay? Check this out.
Yeah. Beside the Sun, that's ISM. And uh, great new music, independent music from New York City. And uh, it's Mike Hagen. You listen to Radio Orbit just a little after 1 a.m. on the 20th of June. And uh, it's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right, my guest is Walter Cruttenden. You can find information about Walter on the web at thegreatyear.com, also at loststarbook.com, and uh, scientific information about this whole concept of binary and trinary systems and what's going on in our own uh, neck of the woods uh, can be found on the web at binaryresearchinstitute.org. And all that stuff will be linked up uh, at, at uh, MikeHagan.com, all right? And uh, as well, the music that we're hearing tonight. So uh, check it out if you're interested, okay? All right, Walter, uh, thanks, and we're back. Hello, Walter? Hello, yes, Mike. All right, good. So uh, here we go. Anyway, um, what I wanted to uh, do at the top of the hour here is is let's, let's talk about uh, the conference that uh, was going on in Sedona, uh, right after we spoke last, uh, I know there were some really interesting people there, and maybe you could we'll start from there and then move toward today. Sure. Well, it's not just me that's saying, you know, ancient cultures were more advanced. As you know well, it's a whole bunch of people around the world, and uh, probably some of the most famous are uh, Graham Hancock. He wrote Fingerprints of the Gods. Sure. He had traveled all around the world and noticed these huge megalithic sites, you know, some some with 200, 300 uh, ton stones, even found a 1,500 ton stone in, in Lebanon, um, well beyond our capacity to move today. Uh, I think we can move 200 tons. That's about it. Anyway, uh, so he sort of theorized, you know, that there must have been a mother culture or something like this. So he spoke, and then uh, Robert Schock uh, came along uh, after Graham had pointed out a bunch of uh, cultures that he's been finding underneath the the, the waters. Um, you know, in the last uh, higher age, the uh, oceans were much lower. Hmm. Uh, about 400 feet, and then they, of course, they grew because the uh, the polar ice caps uh, melted. Um, Robert Schock, he was the uh, geologist at Boston University, famous for redating the Sphinx. Right, because of the water, uh, the, the, the evidence of water erosion on the Sphinx, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, he's cool, and, and him and Graham did a bunch of work, or, or and I think I think they still do quite a bit of work together, right? Yes, they did. They dove at some of these sites together. Oh and, man. And so Shock really got into it, uh, and really, he's a great speaker. You know, he's a professor, so he's talking all the time. And right, right, right. He he's... just told us how this limestone is so hard, there's no way uh, dripping water with the amount of rainfall they've had over there in the last 7,000 years can make cut three-foot grooves through this these levels of limestone. Right. In other words, there had to be a time when, when, when there was a lot more water. Yeah. And he pointed out nearby structures they know were built, say, 4,000 years ago. They're hardly eroded at all versus <laughs> this one. And oh. So it just made a tremendously compelling case. And uh, and the idea is what? That the Sphinx is a lot older than, than, than traditionally thought of? A lot older, yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's generally put around the same time as... Uh, Khufu's Pyramid there, if and indeed is Khufu's Pyramid, the Great Pyramid, mm-hmm. that's generally uh, thought to be dated 
to 23 to 2500 BC. And so the, that's what the Sphinx would be. And he said the Sphinx is probably at least uh, 5000 BC and you know, could be considerably older. Right. Amazing. Yeah. Actually, uh, Graham was on was on this program about a month after you were. Uh, I, I'm just looking at my archives, and he was on on December, uh, the middle of December of last year, and we talked about uh, some of that stuff. At, at now, as I recall. Yeah. And, and he um, he's got an interesting book. This this book called Supernatural, I think, is his most recent work, and and uh, he's he's made a connection, you know, back into the. Uh, archaic shamanism, which which I'm a, a huge uh, advocate of. Uh, so, anyway, really interesting stuff coming from all different angles, you know, Walter? Yeah, no, and heck, we had uh, uh, John Major Jenkins, one of the foremost sure, uh, Mayan sure. cosmologists. Yeah, he's been on the program here a couple times. Yeah, yeah he talked about 2012. Oh, he's great, yeah. Anyway, getting everybody together, and really, uh, you know, we had our private roundtable session before mm, the public I, session. Oh, I bet that was something. And yeah, just uh, heat was coming up because <laughs> uh, you know we were putting so many of the pieces together, and so we were just all totally convinced that there was a much higher age. And you know, we're not sure if uh, why it declined. You know, there, besides the cycle, there could well have been uh, some catastrophic events, comets or meteors hit the Earth um, to one degree or another. And um, so we're just trying to piece together all the bits. And, and this year uh, it's scheduled to occur um, October 13th through 15th at the University of California, Irvine. And we'll have, uh, again, Graham and Shock and John Major Jenkins and John Anthony West. You know, he's just right, right. famous for his wit. Uh, and a number of new speakers, this guy that wrote... Uh, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty, that did all this this work with the pyramids. Mm, yeah, and the, and the electromagnet, yeah. magnetic Yeah, he, he found that uh, uh, the pyramids, or the stones that lead up to Avebury there, um, that stone circle not far from Stonehenge. Right, in the English countryside there. Right, that um, there's a, like a hundred stones that sort of slowly lead up to it. And he did a... Uh, magnetic reading of those and you know when stone is formed you can kind of tell where the natural where the positive and the negative is on on it because uh, how it's uh, when it's first formed in relation to the poles and he found that all the negative sides faced the stone circle and all the positive sides faced away Mm -hmm. indicating that somehow some way the ancients were able to tell, you know, which side was positive and which side was negative uh, when they aligned these stones. Because you can't align a hundred stones accidentally and get them all, you know, so that all the negatives facing the same way and all the positives facing the other way. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. So he's going to be there. Also, we have the number one astronomer in the world is going to join us this year. His name is uh, Jeff Marcy. Yeah, this guy's an uh, uh, extrasolar planet searcher. Yeah, he's found uh, <clears throat> about a hundred planets around other stars, more than anybody else. Well, he and his team at UC Berkeley. Yeah, he had one guy, I forget, that was his sort of his partner, but they were the first, I think, uh, or, or among the first for sure. Yes, 
definitely. I actually got to spend the night uh, with him at the Keck Institute, uh, the biggest telescope in the world right. over in Hawaii. Keck, Keck Observatory, yeah. Yeah, yeah we had just a, a great time and you know, drinking coffee all night to stay <laughs> up. And What is that? that? That's on top of a volcano or something crazy, right? Yeah, it is. It's uh, almost 14,000 feet uh, <laughs> on top of uh, Mauna Kea on the big island of Hawaii. Amazing. Yeah, you you, you literally, uh, you get a little dingy. <laughs> I can't imagine what it must be like up there, especially yeah. staring through that scope. Well, all, well, actually, here's the secret. Right, it's... You only keep the technicians up there. Mm-hmm. We kind of visit up there to make sure everything's set up, right? Right, but and you And then go... we go down to about <laughs> 3,000 feet where everything's hooked in via fiber optic cable. Right, right. And look at it on computer. But I'll bet you just the view of, just the naked eye view of the heavens from up there must be astonishing. Oh, yes. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, you see stars that normally you need a reasonably powered telescope high-powered telescope to, to even see, see just because the atmosphere is so thin and, hmm, fascinating. and it's you know pretty dry so it's great so yeah and so he's going to be there and he's going to talk a little bit about uh, you know possible binary theories and what we know about the solar system and um, got some good things going so. yeah you know it's it's interesting that we we you know we're so certain of all of our Ideas, but uh, as history teaches pretty well, I mean, there's uh, most likely we don't have everything quite right. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> so here we go, you know. Yeah, one of our uh, most colorful speakers, and really, the, I think the audience favorite is a guy named John Daring, huh. and he's uh, just a very humble, unassuming guy that has the most beautiful sense of humor. <laughs> he's sort of, and he's just this far out physicist. Really? And he works for a government think tank. Yeah, what's I, I, I recognize the name. I just can't quite place what he does. Yeah, we'll have to get him on your show sometime. He's yeah. uh, he's uh, he works at CERA, Scientific Applications Research Associates. Hmm. And That's an interesting anagram too, you know. Yeah, and they uh, basically help the government uh, figure out what very subtle energies and subtle waves can do. He started with lasers, but now he's He's working on all sorts of things from acoustic uh, waves. And so he's looked at Chichen Itza and a couple of ancient sites and found out that he thinks that they had a tremendous understanding of acoustics. For example, down there at that site, you can clap your hands and it makes the sound of the the Quetzal bird. Hmm. And uh, he believes that, you know, they had a very sophisticated understanding of acoustics and they designed the site just right to do this because you just can't do it randomly it'd be like us designing something to make uh, the sound of whatever your most common bird is there in missouri what you know, yeah, you know a cardinal or something like yeah. that so yeah and not to mention that that, it, that it's the the centerpiece of their mythology in, in quetzalcoatl so yeah yeah so it's He's a good guy, and he's actually helped move this theory along about the great year, the farthest. So we think, you know, we go around this this uh, other star, and I can get into the what the most likely candidates are there. And he says it's not actually the other star, but it's the orbit that moves us closer to a third point in space, mm. which he believes might be the Pleiades or some site that has a... Uh, uh, 
maybe a magnetar or some super energetic right. type of star in it. So as as an analogy, Walter, like like as a fulcrum or something, or I mean, I'm just trying to create an image uh, in in space for people. What do we? What is this third point? What's the significance? Try to expand on that a little bit. Well, it's almost um, like uh, the Earth has night and day, not because just because it spins on its axis, but because when we do spin, one side of it faces the sun, and you picked up the electromagnetic spectrum from the sun so Mm -hmm. he's saying when we go in this huge binary orbit and over 24,000 years we're moving literally over a trillion miles uh, that at one point in our orbit uh, we're very far from you know the sweet influence of the Pleiades if that's it Uh, and we have our dark age Mm. and at another point in the orbit uh, it's carried us to where we're uh, relatively close Plus, our speed is much faster, and that changes how the waveforms interact with our own ionosphere, magnetosphere, etc. Right, amazing. And so he's he's really modeling this this whole thing, uh, a hypothesis on on how it might work. Because you know, for years, myth, folklore, the ancients, the sages, the rishis have said it's this magnetic center, that's this grand central sun, it's it's this sweet influence from a distant point in space. Right. And um, so he's trying to figure out how a distant point in space could affect us. Amazing. So, uh, yeah, he'll be there. And and um, Boris Fritz, who's uh, one of the foremost uh, Sanskrit scholars, and his day job is nanotechnology, so he's going <laughs> to have an analogy about uh, nanofog. And so... He's trying to talk about the character of the higher ages. And so in the low age, you know, we just think we're hunks of flesh and bones walking around on a physical earth, and that's all there is to it. And then in the age we've just come into, we start to realize, oh, you know, everything's made of finer forces. There's This material universe is really made out of molecules, and that's made out of atoms, and that's mostly space, and the pieces of the atoms are actually made out of vibrating strings and that's just energy and so this whole realization is coming and and he says that as we get higher up we kind of realize that it's kind of like a, a nano fog hmm. which he says in the future of nanotechnology you may have like like your pictures your carpet your furniture is made out of little nano building blocks and you can literally will it into anything you want. Amazing. And so I know it's kind of futuristic, but he's saying that that may be actually what reality is like, and we're just still at the stage where we haven't realized what it is, and we haven't realized how to properly uh, will things. Right, and I mean, there, there's certainly uh, some of these megalithic structures in the in the deep past uh Something, some sort of technology was at work. Whether it's technology like, like we think of it as in machinery, or whether it was a another type of, you know, a mental technology, a psychic technology, or whatever, something like this that the mind is capable of doing, which I certainly don't discount at all. Uh, I've seen amazing things with my own eyes, actually, and uh, something was happening there. And any engineer worth his salt will walk down to Giza and say, "I have no idea how they did this." Yeah, it is rather amazing, and, you know, 
And many, we're always in many other places, right, Walter? I mean, it's not just Giza. We, we sort of use that as the poster child, but, my gosh, they're everywhere. We've been trying oh, to make I mean, that point. Yeah, Stonehenge itself. It's, you know, 50-ton-plus uh, stones. The larger ones might be close to 100 tons. You know, <laughs> they've never actually taken them out and weighed them. But, uh, and we know that some of them came from over 100 miles away. And supposedly they're built at the time that we're barely surviving as a hunter-gatherer because right. we don't know when to plant our crops. And so here we are barely surviving, and they somehow pull these things together? I, yeah, they have time, yeah, they have time to build these amazing structures. <laughs> I don't think so. There's something missing, so... The whole theory doesn't make sense. It's amazing. And as you say, uh, there are many, many stories uh, that, are, that are popping out in the news and stuff. So it, it's, it's, okay, first of all, let's wrap up the CPAC thing. It's great that you guys are all getting together. And uh, I think it's wonderful uh, to, to see so many people collaborating. And again, from so many different, uh, uh, from so many different angles, you know. Yeah, this will be the biggest, best one yet. And that UCI has fabulous facilities. Yeah, really so we're all going to awesome, have these, so. these, Super uh, modern, um, you know, video presentations. And um, if anybody wants to to come, they can just you know go to lostarbook.com and get there that way, or go to the actual um, cpakonline.com, and then you can read about each of the speakers and what they're talking about and that sort of thing. Right. Okay. All right. So. Uh Let's uh, move on past CPAC. Uh, what, what, this is the third annual, fourth annual? Well, this will be the third annual. Third annual, okay. So we're kind of doing it <clears throat> informally, and now it's getting more and more formal. Right. Listen to this. Uh, there was a story that you and I talked about um, that was in the news in November, and, and believe it or not, an, an, uh, sort of a follow-up. You may or may not have seen this one, but you know this old device? It's called, and correct me on the pronunciation, but I think it's called the... Uh, Antikythera? Yeah, the Antikythera device. Did you see this story? No, something new on it? Well, uh, this was from uh, a great um, website, actually. They're called Phys.org, and it's a... Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I mean, they're a very respectable physics um, uh, sort of... uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? But uh, uh, they, they... A lot of... Different information gets channeled through Physorg, and they're, they, they do a great job of... Yeah, sort of they're very credible. Yeah, so anyway, listen to this. It says, uh, this is from June 6th, uh, 6606, as it were. Uh, researchers find hidden Greek text on world's oldest astronomy computer. The size of a shoebox, a mysterious bronze device scooped out of a Roman-era shipwreck at the dawn of the 20th century has baffled scientists for years. Now a British researcher has stunningly established it as the world's oldest surviving astro- uh, astronomical computer. And then the story goes on and on. Uh, a team of Greek and British scientists probing the secrets of the Antikythera mechanism have managed to decipher ancient Greek inscriptions unseen for over 2,000 years, members of the project say. Part of the text, uh, and I'll, I'll stop in a moment, uh, Walter, but this is amazing. Listen to this. Part of the text on the machine, over a thousand characters, had already been deciphered, but we have succeeded in doubling this total, said physician Yanis Pitsakis, part of the multidisciplinary team of researchers uh, in Athens. Uh, blah, blah, blah. We have now deciphered 75% of the text, etc., etc., but they are certain this thing uh, could calculate the position of stars, including the sun, the moon, and who knows what else. And... Uh, 
it's it's a huge monkey wrench that's just thrown right into the uh yes you know in all, all the uh gear ratios that they're finding seem to be planetary ratios for example one is 12 13 12 is the number of times the uh moon goes around uh the number of moon phases you'll see new moons uh, full moons, etc. While the Earth, while the Moon's actually going around That's the Earth thirteen, 13 times, times, exactly right. The five eight, they have the Venus Earth ratio, and uh, so yeah, they're pretty darn sure that it was used for that purpose. What's even more amazing, that one of the gears seems to be a differential gear, and of course we didn't invent those until the eighteen hundreds here, the the Industrial Revolution, and here this device dates pretty accurately uh, to between eighty and eighty one B C. You know, gears weren't even developed until we developed clocks in the 12 to 1400 A.D. period. Isn't it amazing? You know, uh, I'm I'm always, uh, first of all, you know, I always bow at the uh, the feet of our ancestors, and and you know, the people who have been here before. I, I and and I'm reminded of this amazing German uh, philosopher uh, Goethe. You know, Johann Johann Wolf, uh, Wolfgang von Goethe, and he oh, yeah. he said, Walter. Um, we we discover so much because we've forgotten so much. Beautiful. And he said that, you know, 150, 200 years ago. So, yeah. anyway, it's 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 so so fitting for all of this stuff and 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 these uh, these amazing archaeological finds and and uh, and and actually, um, let's talk a little bit more about archaeology here at the bottom of the hour. Uh, for a couple more minutes, and then when we come, we'll take a little break, and when we come back, let's talk about some of the astronomical uh, news. That's uh, I know that there's some amazing data that's just come back from not Pioneer but uh, Voyager, right? Yes. So we'll yes. talk about that. But what else in in, in archaeology uh, has has come to uh, to the surface in, in in the last little bit of time? Well, there's uh, one that's very interesting. It's um uh, in Pakistan, they found 13 skulls that they date to about 8,000 years ago. And these skulls uh, have teeth in them. And the teeth are very, very neatly drilled, as if almost by modern dentistry device. The same type of hole that uh, size that you would see if uh, you went to a dentist today. And some of the skulls have, uh, you know, several teeth drilled, and there's 13 different skulls. And this, again, it just rewrites the clock. I think almost all of us, if you ask somebody on the street, when was dentistry developed? And they said, well, you know, 200 years ago, if you had a decayed tooth, you'd go to the barber, they'd give you some whiskey, <laughs> and they'd pull the thing out. <laughs> right. And that's how it works. Right, right, right. And so now you're finding evidence potentially of, uh, you know, dentistry. And they took this, uh, archaeologists who wrote the paper actually took it to a dentist. And yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in how in how, how certain or, or, or how sure we are that this was actually, it wasn't, you know, well, someone will say a parasite did it, you know, or whatever. No, no, no. It's, it's all over the news. And archaeologists and anthropologists, they all agree it's drilled. They just assume that it was uh, a piece of flint on the tip of an arrow-like <laughs> device, and so you, when you, you when you look at it, okay, yeah, I mean, mm. and then it was pulled with a bow. The problem with that theory is, how do you get a bow to drill the back a molar in your mouth? You, and how do you get a guy to go along with it? 
Uh, well, you know, they had a tremendous knowledge of uh, herbs and things, so uh, I'm sure they could give somebody some kind of pain right, right. Uh, killer. But that's, you know, it just totally, totally uh, rewrites uh, what we were thinking mm-hmm. before. You uh, know, uh, let, me, let me add one thing really quickly. I've been trying to get a hold of this guy whose name is Christopher Dunn. And, uh, you know, he wrote a book called Giza Power Plant. It was years ago. Oh, yeah. And he's an engineer. And, and, and he, he really can talk about, you know, the accuracy of some of these things that we see in, in these monuments. But I would love, I can't get a hold of him. I'm trying to find out how to, how to get in touch with him. But he, um, as a machinist, you know, he would be someone whose opinion I would really like to hear about, uh, you know, because he'd look at these teeth and look for markings of machining, and, and uh, he's really, really good at it. But uh, anyway, it just sort of comes to mind. So, Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just finished Pyramid Quest by Robert Schock, and he, he goes into every pyramid theory there was, including Dunn's, and uh, I, I think he comes out at a pretty good place, too. He kind of tells you which ones he thinks are real and which ones aren't, but um, it's a very, very good book. I'm sure, and, and to read it. I, I mean, I don't know what's, I mean, does anybody, uh, has he come to a conclusion? I mean, are, are any of these guys willing to say this is really what we think was going on, or, or is it still sort of question mark at the bottom of everything? Well, I, you know, I, the, the, the old textbooks will still tell you that it was a tomb and built you know, for Khufu's ego. Right, which just doesn't seem to fly. Right, but of course no funerary items uh, were ever found in it. Um, and so that's that's a tough one. Um, and I think they probably the most favorable school, which is probably getting more votes nowadays, is it was used for some kind of initiation. But the stories I like that make the most sense of it for me is... There's many people that have uh, spent the night there, held ceremonies there, and everybody seems to have a different personal experience. Hmm. Uh, very deeply meditative uh, uh, type experience. Uh, you know, you were talking about Graham Hancock earlier, and he took this uh, this South uh, American tea, ayahuasca, yes, um, to at these shamanistic sort of visions. Mm-hmm. Well, people that spend the night in the Great Pyramid get those kind of visions without the tea. Minus the ayahuasca. Hmm. Yeah, so there's something going on there. I, I don't know what it's all about. You know, it has some properties. That right, and, and there's an energy there. We know there's, there, there's a, a measurable electromagnetic phenomenon going on that this amazing guy is talking about with the seed. What, what was the name of that book again? Uh, seed of knowledge, stone seed of, of plenty. Seed of knowledge, stone of plenty. Yeah. So, all right, Walter. Well, let's uh, let's let's take a, a quick breather here, okay? Okay. And we'll come back and we'll talk for another uh, 25 minutes or so with my guest, Walter Cruttenden. And you can find information about Walter on the web, and just jump on mikehagan.com, and from there you can click over to Walter's sites, okay? And we'll play another piece of music here. This one. Uh, is called Brasilia, and it's by a band called S-Dub. And we'll listen to it right now. And one other thing, it's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, and it's about 1.30 a.m. on June 20th. All right, enjoy the morning, and enjoy the music. 
still be glad if we were invited. Thank you for waiting. We know that for board passengers, we see a condition road 30 to 43, only 30. All right, that's S-Dub. The song is called Brasilia. And that's Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. And uh, we've got Walter Cruttenden for just another uh, 20 minutes or so. And uh, he's been gentleman enough to stick with us late into the night on uh, this morning, actually June 20th, 2006. So, Walter, thanks for sticking with us. Pleasure. Hey, um... uh, People are going to scream at me. Uh, they want to know what the other star is, of course. So uh, uh, we can talk about the astronomical stuff. I want to talk about um, uh, the data that's coming back from Voyager and some of these other things. But 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 let's talk a little bit about the the theories of of which star might be our companion star or which stars might be good uh, uh, you know candidates for it. Well, Mike, it's breaking into sort of two camps as the research goes on and. And one is the classical Newtonian camp that says, gee, if it's something we get around in 24,000 years and we move at what we think are sort of normal speeds out there, then it can't be too far away. It should be closer than the nearest visible star. And therefore, those people are looking for a brown dwarf or a black hole or some planet-like mass that has enough gravity to curve us through space but isn't visible uh, to the naked eye. Right, right. And there's, you know, there's a possibility. As a matter of fact, I was emailing with Jeff Marcy about that, and he's uh, got a new type of telescope he's uh, working on bringing into operation here in the next year or two that that is just perfect for finding something like that. <laughs> and. Richard Muller at UC Berkeley is looking for something like that. Whitmire and Matisse have talked about something like that. So at the University of Louisiana, so a couple of guys on that route. <laughs> yeah, a couple of guys, I should say. And and again, uh, you know, if it's not obvious to the people who are listening, these are big time uh, astrophysical guys that are very interested in this topic. So it's not at all uh, hocus pocus. They're really serious people that are interested in this. And and Walter just uh, pushing the whole pack. So I love it. Oh, yeah, it's real. I mean, when we finished our film on this subject about two years, it's called The Great Year, narrated by James Earl Jones. Uh-huh. Uh, we said in there that there's going to be new finds, and sure enough, uh, uh, you know, they found a planet bigger than Pluto s- since then. Right, uh, right. In our, own, in our own solar system. What do yeah. they call this? Yeah, Xena. Xena. They call her Xena. Yeah. Huh. And then there's then there's Sedna, whatever the hell that one is. Right, and Sedna's uh, just an amazing story in itself. Let me just give you the other scenario first, and then we'll get to Sedna, because it tells us that something real is happening. The other scenario is that the solar system might be moving a lot faster than people think it is, and that a new guy out of uh, Australia, Reg Cahill, is, has a paper on this, and we may actually have the ability to get around a nearby visible star in 24,000 years. And this is this is hard for some people to swallow because it's you know it doesn't fit current Newtonian dynamics. Say that again. We may actually be going around a nearby visible star in 24,000 years. And and the biggest candidate there is the star Sirius. It's it's the brightest star in the sky. It's just eight light years away. 
Um, there's tons of myth and folklore that says it has uh, that it is the mother of the sun, or it's our other sun. I mean, it, there's the Japanese Shinto religion has temples pointed towards Sirius. They call it our other sun. Uh, one of the Giza star shafts point to Sirius, and there's some amazing uh, gravitational work done by the Holmans out of the Canada to show we're actually gravitationally linked to Sirius. So while there's some good evidence there, um, it would mean that the solar system must be going very, very fast and and can even stay in an orbit like that. And so that whole part of it, all the theoretical mechanics, uh, is still to be worked out if it can be worked out. And so I actually i am leaning more and more towards that school. I mean, to the Egyptians, uh, their number one god was Isis. And Isis is serious, and Isis is often seen suckling or holding or or working with Horus. Horus, her son, yes. Right, and Horus is uh, yeah another aspect of the sun, and so they're just going hand in hand. And they say that you know Sirius brings life and takes it away, like we're talking about in this great year. But that's been interpreted by modern day archaeologists to mean oh well then when Sirius rises, that's about the time that the Nile floods. And so that's what they mean by bring, bringing life, bringing mm. the waters and help farming. But they could have been on to something much more profound that we haven't even discovered. And right. But again, these things have different levels. In other words, certainly it could be uh, the, the, the Nile flood and the bringing of life that that uh, entails could be part of the metaphor, certainly. But, but then, as you mentioned, much more deep uh, parts of it exist as well, maybe. Yeah. And also, our, it might be a little technical, but if we are in a binary system, our companion star would be the one star that would keep its coordinates relative to Earth while it moves across the heavens. And um, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm sure it would. I mean, I don't understand exactly, but I'm sure it would have some sort of unique behavior versus the other stars in the heavens. At least it seems like it should. That just seems my intuition. Right. Yeah, say we're both on a merry-go-round, and I'm on a horse on one side, and you're the horse on the other side. Mm -hmm. um, you and I, relative to each other, we we keep our same position. Mm -hmm. I see. But okay. all the other people in the background, let's say those are stars, they all seem to be moving across the sky. So we call that procession. Mm -hmm. All the stars are moving across the stars. Sky, but this one star isn't moving relative to Earth. Do we see that with Sirius? We do. Really? I, I mean, the the records aren't long enough for anybody to buy it yet. But take the Giza pyramid. They have one of the shafts right now right. Points, points to the star right to Sirius. Sirius. Right. Why would the Egyptians have you know one of the shafts of their greatest monument? You know, one of the seven wonders of the world. Mm -hmm point to their God in just our lifetime, if if it's moving, you know, one degree every 72 years, in 72 years, that boom, it's off to some other star and will never return to Sirius for a whole 24,000-year procession cycle. And yet here it is, right in our lifetime, it's pointing right at Sirius. Right. In other words, so the, the idea is that they probably were pointing at Sirius then as well, and it just hasn't moved. Exactly. And this is... Wow, that's this, that's outrageous. Yeah, this is blasphemy to 
in current astrophysics uh, that you could have then I love a star it. <laughs> that doesn't process across the sky. But same thing with these Shinto temples. They point to Sirius. Hmm. Why? I mean, they were built a long time ago. Why are they still pointing to Sirius? <laughs> it's, wow, that yeah. is amazing. Wow, well, well, that is very, very... And Sirius is called the dog star. It scampers across the sky. The, it's also been called Nibiru by the... Uh, ancient Sumerians. Really, is that the same? Because I haven't heard the, I haven't heard that that yeah. argument that that Sirius was actually Nibiru. Or... Yeah, it's in uh, Hamlet's Mill by Giorgio de mm-hmm, Santiana, mm-hmm. Uh, Appendix Thirty Nine. Mm-hmm. You'll find that uh, Nibiru, Sirius are one and the same. Wow. I wonder what, what does Zacharias Sitchin and that gang say about that. I wonder. I wonder if they dispute. I'm sure he, they do. But you know, Zacharias interprets it as a planet, but if you look at Heiser and a number of other German scholars, uh-huh. uh, they have they all say, no, nope, that symbol is actually a star symbol, not a planet symbol. Wow, fascinating. And it's it's also the crossing mm-hmm. star. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, Sitchin says, well, that must mean because it comes in and crosses through the planets. And, uh, you know, has a big effect. Well, it has a big effect, and it crosses all the other stars, but it's not actually crossing through our universe. It's it's the pivot point, and it's why we see precession because it's it's our companion. We're on the merry-go-round with that star. That's amazing, you know. And then you got the whole uh, Dogon mythology that I'm just thinking of now. Yes, again, uh, a whole nother serious-oriented culture. Right. That even knew about the companion star. Or stars. I think what is, we know now that Sirius is a trinary system, right? At it least. has its own little companion, Sirius B. Uh, we know for sure, and some theorize it might have uh, Sirius C. Another another right. companion, maybe. Yeah. Well, we know it's at least a binary system, and and somehow uh, ancient peoples a long time ago knew that it was a binary system as well, long before uh, modern telescopy and all this stuff. So. Right. Right, yeah, and it looks like uh, Sirius B, this is the the Homans work out of Canada, they they keep a telescope fixed mounted to Sirius. Sirius never moves. I mean <laughs> the Earth turns, comes right back to Sirius each day, right back to Sirius, you know, every twenty three hours and fifty six minutes. And it uh they've found that they've been keeping it for almost twenty years and when Sirius B came in between Sirius A and the Earth. Uh-huh. The whole Earth slowed down about a second of a day for a month leading up to that. Is that right? And then when B crossed in between, the whole Earth sped up for about a second a day and got right back to the the average. <sighs> and so... They think there's definitely a gravitational relationship between our system and the Sirius system and that Sirius B kind of acts like a pendulum that helps sort of tune the uh, orbits of our own planets. Look at uh, Pluto, you know, our farthest planets out. It's exactly 5.000 to 1 ratio of uh, of uh, Sirius B going around Sirius A. Is that right? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So there's just a whole bunch of little tidbits like that, and I almost hate to say it in front of other astronomers because they 
hmm. say, well, haven't you done the math? You can't get around Sirius for 24,000 years. I say, I know, but look at all this other stuff. Right. So we got a lot to figure out there. Amazing. All right. Well, yeah. what uh, what's the recent data that's come in from uh, from Voyager? Okay. The the Voyager thing. <laughs> just real quick. Voyager one and two were sent off in 1977. Right. Voyager one went around Jupiter, took some of the first best pictures of it, and of course that's the biggest planet. So when it swung around there, it just was whipped into. Uh, the outer uh, solar system at a high rate of speed. Voyager 2, launched at the same time, uh, was on a slower course, went around Saturn. Not as much mass, so it was whipped out, but whipped out more slowly, and it took a look at Neptune and Uranus along the way. Mm -hmm. Got the first pictures of those outer planets, the first good pictures. And so uh, when Voyager 1 hit the... uh, edge of our heliosphere and this is sort of the end of the solar wind, the cocoon Mm -hmm. the electromagnetic cocoon basically that holds our solar system Uh, it it hit the edge there about uh, a couple years ago and uh, it hit it at a certain distance which uh, I'll I'll say is 10 billion miles I'm I'm just going to round here and and not get into the helio sheath and stuff like that but Voyager 2 then, they thought, well, it will also hit it at 10 billion miles because it is a, the heliosphere is a sphere after all. Well, <laughs> the news that came back last month was that it uh, it's hitting it around 8 billion miles. Mm-hmm. And indeed, the heliosphere is not a sphere. It's comet-shaped. Mm-hmm. It's indicating that our solar system is on a high rate of trajectory through a local space. Right. Uh, it's exactly uh, what we predicted. And so that was really good news. Fascinating. And then the Sedna news on top of that, too, uh, is also rather amazing. Tell, you know, people, tell people about Sedna. Well, Sedna is one of these planetoids. It's, uh, again, a little smaller than, uh, than Pluto, and so a candidate for, you know, 11th or 12th planet or whatever we're up to now. Right. There's a whole thing about how do you classify it, a planet or whatever. But yeah. anyway, it's a yeah. big thing. Pluto out shouldn't be. It's only 2% of the Earth's mass. But anyway, it is. Right, right. <laughs> um, so they found Sedna, and it took them a while to figure out, you know, what the actual orbit period is. And it turns out it's in this tremendously elliptical orbit with a 12,000-year periodicity. And so Michael Brown, the, you know, this top planetoid founder, finder out of Caltech, guys, uh, on the cover of Discover Magazine uh, a couple months ago, uh-huh. and the interview, he's just going on and on that this can't be. Sedna cannot maintain this elliptical orbit. It shouldn't exist. Uh, you know, it should get more circular over time or something. Right. And so nobody knows why. Sedna has been pulled into this elliptical orbit and over the life of the solar system has not changed. Yeah, and, and you just mentioned before that, that, that whatever the candidate for the, <clears throat> uh, for the companion star might be, that, it, that it's possible that it would influence or have sort of a tuning effect and keep things like that in, in, 
in tune. Right, and and look at Sedna. Huh. 12,000 years, we're in a 24,000-year orbit, exactly mm. a two-to-one resonance. Mm. It's, you know, these coincidences just keep... Keep piling up, man. Keep pi- piling up, yeah. Amazing, Walter. It Absolutely really astonishing stuff that's coming out. So. Yeah. All right, so we got about uh, we got five minutes or so. Um, how should we wrap things up here? Oh, boy, we can go, uh, you know, onto the archaeology side. But you know, actually, I like to talk about what the meaning of all this is. Yeah, what the heck does it mean? We, you know, we started off talking about the, uh, the the turning of the ages and this idea of golden ages and bronze, silver, uh, and iron. I guess so. Yeah. Maybe what's going on? Okay. Well. You know how a lot of people now are talking about this idea that physical reality seems to be more ethereal, more malleable than we first thought. It's it's actually made out of vibrating strings, which are not even matter at all. Right. This is the latest, greatest version, at least. Energy, yeah. And this is exactly what the rishis predicted. That said, you know, when you get to the Dupara Yuga, the second age that we're, we've just come in here, you know, after the Renaissance on our way back up from the Dark Ages, that we would start to realize that uh, we aren't just a blob of flesh on a physical universe, that everything is finer and finer. And we started to talk about this. And in the next age, we're supposed to realize, ooh, it's not even energy, it's mind, it's all thought that that forms it all. And then the next age beyond that, we're supposed to realize that it's actually spirit. And they have different uh, terms, like the Greeks said, the lowest age is the age of man, the next age is the age of the hero, uh, the one we've just come into, one after that is the age of the demigods, and in the age of the gods when they're actually mankind can communicate with you know anything and just about do anything <laughs> and so we're we're kind of right like one of those first few days in spring where we're just you know waking up from the darkest ages and starting to realize that the universe is a lot more amazing than we thought it is than we ever guessed yeah maybe it's just one big giant matrix and we can indeed um, tune it uh, shape it the way uh, we dream we can you know Uh and so we get back to you know the teachings of Christ and he said hey ye are gods Mm. these things that I do ye shall do also and and greater yes yeah 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 and uh, you know was he just lying to us (laughs) or was was he truly perceptive of what it was like in yeah, and, the higher you know, ages? And and for you know, I I love it, and and and, I, and I'll mention it again. You know, he who drinks of my blood and eats of my flesh shall be as I am. Right? Yeah, that's what he said. That's what the book says, people. Yeah, <clears throat> people. And I, we we haven't had the ability to understand that because we've looked at everything so materially before and. And I think now we're coming into this beautiful time. And I don't know if it's 2012 that we reach critical mass, like the the Mayans sort of hinted, uh, or sooner or later. But it seems like lots of people are talking about this expansion of consciousness that's going on. And sure, they attribute it to DNA or to a sudden spurt in evolution. Um, and 
there's probably a lot of causes, but I definitely think one of these causes is just this this thing that all the ancient cultures told us that we go through this great cycle and go through a dark period and now we're waking up and I really think we're at the, the dawning of a higher age right well, now. Well, it's amazing and, and, and at the same time it's sort of critical. In other words, we'd better be, be <laughs> you know, because there are a lot exactly. of things that are happening that are sort of unsustainable and if we continue along the same route, uh, you know, even the straight people, you know, that own the world, if you look at their curves, uh, they're not very encouraging curves. You know, if you look at things like, uh, you know, population and, uh, you know, the spread of endemic disease, uh, you know, uh, economic instability. This is people like the World Bank and these clowns, right? Right. They, I mean, not, they won't show you their graphs for 20 years in the future because they all go off the map. And yeah. uh, so something's going to have to give, Walter, and, and uh, we're just going to sit back and check it out, I guess, and... Uh, and, and watch it as it comes, you know? Yeah, I think what gives is, uh, you know, it's not just plain old grunting ape men <laughs> in the future. It is us changing. We are consciousness. We are, are, we have the ability to handle our problems and get them in order on a, on a better and better basis. And I know I sound optimistic but i am I, and it's because i am too the ancients have been right mm -hmm. all the yeah. way along and they're going to be right again right and again uh you know we it has been lost and uh, and the title of your book is a, is an appropriate one because there are many things that have been lost uh but that can be recovered including this great tradition uh that many of us have and our ancestors uh, both men and women were amazing people, and they did amazing things, and uh, and we uh, we can do uh, we can do these things too, and we owe it uh, to them, and we owe it to our children and and, and our children's children to uh, to try to turn uh, the tide as best we can, you know, because uh, why not? It's time to step up to the plate, and you know, many of these ancient uh, teachings like. Uh, Oh, a knowledge of chi and acupuncture and meditation and these techniques are coming back and mm. more and more people are are practicing them and I think it's having this acceleration effect and uh, again I, I think we're at a, a very positive point in in history and inflection point. All right, well look, Walter, we are uh, about at the end of our rope here, so uh, thank you as always, man. It was. Absolutely wonderful and amazing information, and uh, we'll get this thing up on the web uh, within the next day or so and share it with everybody else. Uh, but from my heart, thank you so much. You're doing great work. It was a joy. Thank you, Mike. Uh, really appreciate it. Yep, sounds good. I'll be in touch with you, okay? Okay. All right, Walter. All right, everybody, this is uh, Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. We'll wrap things up here. we got one more song from uh, my friend, Henrik Palmgren, Leek. The song is called Rosetta Stone. Before we hear it, we'll say thank you to Walter Cruttenden. All of his information will be available on the web, MikeHagan.com. You can link over to Walter's sites, Lost Star Book, TheGreatYear.com, both of those sites, and also Binary Research Institute, where all the scientists are hanging out doing amazing work. So next week we'll do open lines and catch up on news, or we might have Rick Levine uh, or Levine with us, the guy who did uh, Quantum Astrology with Jay Widener. So, anyway, thanks for sticking around. Sorry the stream didn't work tonight. We'll fix it and uh, we'll get better at it, okay? But it's a learning curve, uh, as all things are. 
All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Stick around. Yvonne will be with you in just a few minutes to play some good music. And uh, I'll be back next week. And I hope you guys come back to you, okay? This is Rosetta Stone. It's Leak. And one more big thank you to Walter Cruttenden and everybody who listened to the show. We'll see you in a week. <laughs>